people pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. At last, the space comedy you didn't know you were waiting to see. The Ice Pirates. In the far distant future, in a galaxy where those in the know don't go, real estate is cheap, and they've got great sushi. But there's no water. You got any uh, water? It is a time when desperate men will swing from the chandeliers. Pirates on the just to get a drink. Just take a look at that. Good men like Jason, space pirate, and explorer of the cosmos. His chief engineer and fellow rogue Roscoe. They come. Oh, here, quit that. And the beautiful Princess Karina. One tiny band who must bust their buns, battling the masters of all the water in the galaxy. The evil Mithradoids, famous for not being nice. Killing you would be too easy. I have something better in mind. The Ice Pirates. See startling special effects. See depravity in zero gravity. See glamour girls from another galaxy. See kung fu robots. And delight in the mysteries of the seventh world. The one place in the universe to get a decent glass of water. Don't do that. Pirates. A totally spaced adventure. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me is Mr. Chris Stashew. I have to admit something to both of you right at the top of this show. I have space herpes. Also back in the booth after far too long is Mr. Dwayne Swarzynski. If space herpes is kind of going around, I'm a little nervous being back in the booth. I thought you guys had it fumigated or something. This week, we are discussing the 1984 film from Stuart Raffle, The Ice Pirates. The film stars Robert Urich as Jason and Michael D. Rhodes as Roscoe. They're the pair of titular ice pirates, intergalactic privateers who try to rob the ships of the Templars, of their most precious cargo, ice. Fresh water is at a premium and government overreach is at a maximum. Along with more of their crew and some really awful robots, the Ice Pirates cross paths with Mary Crosby as Princess Karina, who eventually gives them a quest to find the mysterious Seventh World, where water flows like wine. I'm not sure there's much to ruin as we discuss Ice Pirates, but we're going to do our darndest you have been warned. So, Dwayne, when was the first time you saw this movie, and what did you think? 
what's funny about this is when I first, you know, it was invited to do this movie with you guys. I thought I hadn't seen it as a kid. I, I, I barely wanted to see it. I mean, the whole thing was like space. It looked very Indiana Jones like. I thought this is my jam. And then I watched it. And I thought, no, I have seen this. I did. <laughs> the day my dad totally rented this thing. When I was 12 or 13. And I remember certain sequences. And I think I probably erased them from my brain, my young brain. Uh, but even, you know, it was a rewatch, but not, it was a fresh rewatch. I feel like I came to a cold almost, although with sort of lingering PSTD like, you know, <laughs> uh, <laughs> reactions to it. It's a weird, it's a weird movie. I mean, I'm sure somewhere out there, this is someone's favorite movie. I'm not sure I want to meet them necessarily. No, I'm kidding. Uh, it's just, it's just a weird uh, mix of childlike antics and zany humor and really kind of, you know, adult, adult sex humor and uh, sex comedy. And also some truly offensive things, really offensive things that I was like, wow. Okay. 84. What a year. And Chris, how about you? Was this a first time watch for you? So what's funny about this is you know you and i obviously weirding way media have our podcast network that exists and so you had sent the list to me because you'd sent the list to everybody and you were like you know what what's jumping out at you guys i had done this on the culture cast earlier this year of all things uh a friend a very close friend of mine him and i do kind of just some supplementary episodes from time to time he has a little bit of lower key energy than i do and this is a movie that he used to watch all the time as a kid. And he's a couple years older. Than me. And so he was like, I really want to do this episode. I really want to watch this movie. I want you to see this movie and tell me what you think. And I was like, sure. We had to reschedule three times of no one's fault specifically. I have seen this movie now this year five <laughs> times. Holy cow. <laughs> I watched it once for each of the times I thought we were going to do it. And then I watched it twice for, for this episode. I'm done watching Ice Pirates for this year, but I will say as as a, as a fifth, fourth and fifth time watching this movie, obviously, A, I wouldn't have volunteered to be here with you because I said specifically, I want to do this movie. I wouldn't have done that if I didn't really kind of enjoy how weird this movie is. Because again, like, like you've already mentioned, Dwayne, it's a sci-fi movie, not a parody. It's not like Z-A-Z. But it's the other way you do this, which is you just kind of make a movie like it, and then the laughs come from the absurdity of it, not you peppering the film with visual gags and gags to Sanka and other stuff. It's just the absurdity of what it is on the face of it is funny. So that's kind of what Ice Pirates is for me now, is it's a Star Wars-adjacent movie. There's a fine line between, like, parody... And also rip off. It rips it off, kind of. It's also is it making fun of it because if you make fun of it, it's not a rip off. But if there's a rip off, then do more with it. I don't know. It's just kind of it walks a weird line the entire time. I kept thinking, where's this gonna land? And it never lands anywhere. It just is. <laughs> you know? hey, well, it's you know, I mean, obviously, when when I think of Star Wars parodies, the big one that comes to mind is Spaceballs, which is a like straight parody of Star Wars. So. This this isn't that though, but it's it's kind of brilliant in its own way. It just kind of says like Star Wars is ridiculous, and we know that. And even if they want to play it straight, we don't have to. And I appreciate that about this movie because this is not, you know, we always say, oh, you can't make this kind of movie anymore for various reasons. They wouldn't make this movie anymore. Nobody would, and that's a shame in a lot of ways. Yeah, it's almost like you know. But, you know, Star Wars was like, you know, it's like swashbucklers in space. 
Yeah, well, I will show you actual swashbucklers in space. <laughs> like they're actual swords, actual, you know, get ups, the whole pirate thing. It's just wow, it was just a weird, you know, that's a that's a parody, that's genius. If it's not, I'm not sure what it is. It's kind of war. <laughs> and because I can't help but stir the pot, I will say this much eat your heart out. Fans of Firefly, this kind of did it better, and it kind of did it first. Speaking of swashbucklers in space. So I saw this one when I was 12 years old, which is the perfect time to see it. And I saw this theatrically, I think, multiple times, because there was a little movie theater that was across the street, the showboat theater, across the street from the gas station that my mom and dad were trying very unsuccessfully to run for probably a year, but it feels like a lot longer than that. But it must have been right around this time because I would go over to that movie theater and just watch stuff. And I would watch it many times, just, you know, several trips over and watch films. So I have this weird ambivalent relationship with this movie because I remember liking it a lot, you know, nostalgically. But then when I watched it again a few years ago, I think my wife bought it for me on DVD and I'm just like, yeah, this really isn't that good, but we still watch it. Whenever it's on cable, we'll watch it. And then I've watched it only two times this year, Chris. So I'm, you've got me beat on that one. But actually, I think three times, because every time I would interview somebody, and we've got some interviews later on in the show, every time I would interview folks, I would rewatch the movie so it was fresh and then watch it again last night before we did this. So I'm kind of a glutton for punishment that way, because, yeah, this it's it's so uneven and just such a weird tone and just yeah the whole idea of like knights out in space and swords out in space and pirates out in space and then there's like some mad max type stuff going on in here as well yeah it's just very strange it kind of reminds me of almost like what i think it was vincent ward was going to try to do with alien 3 where it was like monks out in space and this oh, whole no. wood planet yeah exactly <laughs> it's like okay it's like very anachronistic because you always think of space as being much more far advanced but then in a situation like this that you've got guys in like literal chain mail but then you've got robots as well though i think the robots were supposed to look a lot more like knights and right now they just look like i don't know like big piles of garbage the the design on the actual robots not very compelling for me jankiest robots ever i mean i really was like what the hell's going on <laughs> well it took me forever to figure out that the one robot has a short and that's why it keeps kicking out and i just thought that he didn't like the robot that was next to him i'm like okay <laughs> so i have i have a question for y'all have either have either of y'all been to Disneyland or Disney World and seen Captain EO by chance? No, Or do I'm not. you know what it is? That's the Michael Jackson thing, right? Yes. It is the Michael Jackson thing. And what's crazy is, so that is in, I believe, 86 at Disneyland. This comes out in 84. This has Angelica Houston in it. That has Angelica Houston in it. And they both look very similar visually especially the design of the robots kind of the garbage robots this movie in a lot of ways i don't think i mean george lucas obviously is just parroting his own stuff in captain eo which is what they're doing here in a way but it looks so much like it and it's such a weird coincidence that angelica houston happens to be in both and it just they look very 
visually the same. I don't think it's intentional, but again, they're aping the same thing. So yeah, that's funny. On, on that note, actually, you guys know the the, uh, the fifth element in this movie have a lot in common. Like the fifth element, Luke Besson, he must have seen this movie because his like version of a far future rich assholes is kind of similar to Ice Pirates version of that. Like, this sort of weird party environment. Even the bad guy. In this movie, is, is it Zorn? And in Fifth Element, it's Zorg. It's like this weird little the echo. It's like, mm, interesting. Salt of the Earth, like Hero, Bruce Willis in Fifth Element, um, uh, Robert Ulrich in this one. It's like, okay, all right. It's like, I don't know. It's not a tough guy, rogue, hanging out. I don't know. There's, to me, there's some connections there, but it could be in my mind and not reality. No, I was seeing quite a, a, a few other films, especially, of course, Star Wars, but then we'll talk a little bit more about Spaceballs as we go along. And I mean, for me, as a huge fan of Star Wars when I was a kid, I was a pig and slop when it came to the late 70s, early 80s, because it was just this field day of, you know, the really direct cash-ins on Star Wars, like Humanoid or Message from Space or some of these other films. And then you get Gremloids, which kind of has some things that are similar to Star Wars and you know, as time moves on, of course, you're going to get like a resurgence when it comes to Empire Strikes Back. And I think this was kind of riding that resurgence. And I should say that the draft of the script that was out there that we read was from summer of 82 prior to Return of the Jedi, though it took about two years for this thing to get made and to come out. And we're going to hear about more people that had their hands in the script because the script is it's freaking wild, man. And we were talking a little bit before we started recording. As soon as I hit, I think it was page, it was literally, it was page two. Page two, it's the pirates are invading the other spaceship. And I'm like, okay, you know, we've got Jason, we got Roscoe, we got Zeno, the character that Ron Perlman plays. And then we go, as Debs closes the hatch, a streak of light races into the chamber, crosses the floor, zoom betwe zooms between Jason's legs, then reappears on his shoulder as a small fleeting figure. Sebastian is a pygmy ghost from a lost planet. He's about eight inches high and consists of an ethereal diaphanous material draped over a perfectly formed crown. His body is indistinguishable, and his only visible features are two beautiful childlike eyes. Sebastian is perfectly innocent. He hates violence, loves Jason, and likes to sleep a lot. He has his own musical theme, twitters and whistles when he's happy, and speaks a few rudimentary words in a high-pitched, bird-like voice. Sebastian also has the ability to heal human wounds with what appears to be tiny hands working behind his ethereal form. And I have to say, I kept waiting for Sebastian to be kind of this like deus ex machina, like, oh, well, he'll help out and he'll heal people and yada, yada. He barely shows up in the screenplay at all. He's just like every once in a while, it's like, oh, and Sebastian's there too. And I'm like, what? But he's like R2-D2, isn't he? That's, <laughs> that was what I read it as. Yeah. It's like a thinly veiled reference at R2-D2, like just being there, but not doing anything. And let me put to rest the whole rumor of this was originally supposed to be a space adventure that got turned into a comedy when they cut the budget. This script from two years before it came out, it's very similar to what we have. And there is a lot of humor to it. So this whole idea of, no, no, we turn it into a comedy. There's a lot of rumors around this film. And with this $20 million, like serious sci-fi epic. And they realize, oh, that's too much money. 
let's do it for eight million and make it a comedy. <laughs> that's what I read, and that's obviously bullshit because the script is very much what we saw. The the this, the weirdness and the zaniness is all baked into that. Now I can definitely see them really struggling with the budget, though. I think the robots suffer because of that. I think they're well, obviously Sebastian right out of there, but there's a few other things where I'm just like, oh, okay, well this probably should have looked better. And we can talk about the time warp sequence because that's a whole different thing. Like, but we can, we can talk about that as we get there. Cause the way that this film is set up is very much like, here's this big set piece followed by another big set piece, followed by another big set piece. Like this opening read on the ship, it sets up, you know, the entire rest of the movie because we're introduced to, I'm going to say Zorg, even though it's not Zorg, Zorn right. and, and Warren, right. <laughs> Gorn and all of these other characters. And it really takes us through, like, even the whole idea of, like, introducing the princess, even though in this scene she's innocent and just like, what are you doing here, you rogue type of thing. And then when she returns back to the movie, you're just like, this is the same character, right? But she's acting totally different. It's very, very weird character swings, you know? Um, but my favorite scene is, like, early on, they're kind of being badasses, they're rogues in their ship, they're eating apples. Like, okay, <laughs> what? <laughs> That's the sign of like, you know, I guess in the, the wireless future, apples are like this decadent luxury, I suppose. But it's just very funny. The little details, there's someone, you know, obviously thinking about that. Those kind of weird, you know, strange details that amuse me. <laughs> so it keeps you going through it. No, it's a good point about is that a sign of wealth or not? And then I did really notice how Eric doesn't chew the apple that he just like holds the apple in his hand and that he kind of like mock chews as he's talking and i'm just like well that's really smart because otherwise you'd be eating a whole barrel full of apples as you went through every single take here in his career you know he's already done vegas he's done all these like great tough guy roles this is different for him right am i misremembering his career that this seems like a left turn it was very unusual for him i mean he i never associated him with comedy but then again i grew up with him in the vegas era i think it was uh speaking of star wars i want to say it was like star wars holiday special and then here's vegas as uh previously scheduled <laughs> I, I was very surprised because then he even did like didn't he do like some of the spencer stuff as well oh yeah exactly yeah yeah but atypical role i mean it was really you know he wasn't afraid to go there too, wearing unitards and you know pretending to be castrated and all that, all that fun stuff that you do in this role. Uh, it was kind of funny. I like this idea of the swashbuckling, like really leaning on that, like really leaning on how anachronistic the movie is. Like that for me is probably why I enjoy it so much. I think if it were just you know there, if it were just space and not space with all the weird, like again they're ice pirates it's in the title of the movie they are stealing ice because water is now currency that idea can only work if it's anachronistic if the world is anachronistic on the face of it and i appreciate that because again and i you know again i'm sitting here racking my brain to think about it star wars adjacent movies tend to not be great anyways and there are not a whole lot of them either for the sheer fact that at least the original three Star Wars movies, and your mileage is going to vary with everything else, those three movies are so solid, what else can anyone do to that genre that Star Wars kind of didn't create but made into something so spectacular that we're still talking about it today? 
people don't do those kinds of movies then and now for good reason. And the fact that this one does, I think, has to be applauded just to begin with. But yeah, the idea that they're so anachronistic, I think, only helps the movie. And it helps with the casting, too. Because it allows you to cast all different kinds of people in your movie, like a Ron Perlman, like a Michael D. Roberts, even. There's not much world building. That's what's missing. Like the world building, at least the Lucas movies, it's just so much great, you know, material to work with. And here they kind of fill it in with like, oh, is this like a feature, a feature of humanity? Whereas they've clung to like the, the night era of the Knights and Templars as their culture. Like you, your mind goes to places, okay, what is this? You try to figure out, is this 10,000 years from where we are now? But by the end, you'll well, not to spoil things, but in the end, it isn't the case at all. But you wonder, okay, what is this? You know, what is this being built upon? Is it like, is it a world where this clinging to that, you know, again, that, that, that sort of round table mentality of knights and, and, you know, dashing rogues. It's interesting. It's a lot of mashups too. Like the pirate era, that the era of knights, the era of, you know, well, ice, you know, it's just all very, very bizarre. When they're on the planet and it's, they have this like weird kind of Mad Max adjacent. It does kind of feel more like a genre mashup movie, less a kind of Star Wars parody. You know, again, it's science fiction, but I don't think it's any one specific kind of science fiction thing. It kind of is all over the place, which I, again, swing, swing as hard as you can when you're making a movie like this. Don't play it safe. And I don't think they played it safe. Whether or not it's a complete success is a different story, but... I that's the one thing I will say about this movie that you cannot claim it is a boring movie. It may not be a funny movie. It may not be a overtly successful movie, but it's not boring. It's inherently interesting just by what they're trying to do. It sure is. Yeah. I, mean, I remember even you know, anachronisms like at one point the princess mentions uh, having some Tylenol, like taking some Tylenol. Like, okay, wait, okay. Where were we now? Is Tylenol still around 10,000 years in the future? Or <laughs> what is this? Is that intergalactic all of a sudden? You know, that stuff is very funny. I mean, even like, it's funny, the, the weird racism comments. Like, it's very much, you know, trying to be, I guess, the 84 version of woke, but like, oh, God, what's, what's happening here? So it's, yeah, very much a comedy of manners, you know, of, of sex and how we treat each other and all that stuff. But boy, it's in a, it's a weird package. It's very weird. You never really figure out, like you mentioned the Templars and like, are they like descendants of the Knights Templar or, or does it have something to do with time with temp inside of there? Like, and there is time stuff later on, you know, even having Jason's name be like Jason from Jason of the Argonauts. But when it comes to the Templars, it's like, what is their motivation? Like we even get taken to John Carradine who seems really out of place in this movie. And it's just like, Oh, he's the Supreme commander. doesn't really say a whole lot. just kind of gives us a little bit more, you know, information, a little bit of, of, uh, you know, exposition dump, but it's just like, what, what is your guys's motivation? Like, are you trying, obviously you're trying to control water. We understand that, but like, is there some sort of like religious thing going on or like what, what's your deal? Like what is, what makes a Templar a Templar? Like we never really get that. Like what is Zorn's thing? He just shows up every once in a while and acts like a dick. And I mean, again, talking about uh, star Wars, there's that whole, like we let them go, you know, we have the tracking device on their ship and I'm just like, Okay, yeah, I've heard that one before, but it's like, 
all right, a little bit of subterfuge and everything. I'm like, okay, it's it's very much a castle intrigue type of movie, but set in space, which I know like a lot of Star Wars was like this whole thing of like when, you know, Ben is going around the Death Star and it's like, oh, my old master and all this kind of stuff. But yeah, here it's just like much more spread out because you're going to go to a lot of different planets and meeting a lot of different creatures. But there's a lot of times where I'm just like, what, why, why are we doing this? Why are we doing this whole like, eunuchs as slaves to the templars because you get some of those eunuch type characters on that ship but then you really see them later on when it's the you know castrate the 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 men and shave them and all this kind of stuff and i i think there's women eunuch characters as well unless they're just very feminized male characters i'm just like what is the deal here what why are you doing that? and then the white wigs and the white mustache for michael Ravitz for roscoe i'm like Okay. Oh, yeah. The black ones are very popular. If you think about Spaceballs and the anachronisms in that movie, they're here, too. And this is three years before Spaceballs with the Prince Valium and the Druidia. Like, is that's very similar to what's going on on planet Castrate or whatever. I forget what the name of the planet is that they go to where they find the princess. But it's that same thing of showing, like, essentially a fairy tale world with, you know, high towers and people in kind of medieval dress, but they have it in this movie. But they don't, they they do something different with it, which I appreciate, because in, in Spaceballs, it's, that is the part that's funny. In this, that's just part of what they're building on that planet it, around all the gags that they go through. I was impressed by this, oh, this budget. They, they do a lot of planet hopping. It looks pretty expansive, and it looks cheap. They do cover a lot of territory, which is pretty impressive. I mean, you know, I don't know how they'd pull that one off for whatever the budget was. Eight million, I guess. It looks cheap, but, you know, at least they went there. They tried it. You know, it was kind of cool. I have to say, for me, the MVP of this whole movie is John Matutsik, the uh, former football player. Mostly people know him as playing um, Sloth. Man, he is hilarious in this movie for me. Just this whole thing of when they're when they introduce him, his character's name is Killjoy, by the way. But when they introduce Killjoy, it's always the same in the slave section. The closer we get to Mithra, the more everyone gets to thinking about being redesigned. Redesigned? Yeah, castrated, lobotomized. It's a new process. They say it doesn't hurt. <laughs> they do that to everybody in this section. Eh. Everyone except for the monk. They don't castrate clergy. Just in case. Just in case what? Just in case there really is a god. <laughs> and then when he shows up in the, the priest costume, it's just like, oh, good luck, my son, and walks off. It's like, this is, he's pretty awesome. And he's got just a real good sense of humor. And every time he delivers a line, he delivers he really brings it and like when he shows up again later on in a suit of armor and all this and then when he joins the whole band i'm just like yeah this really works for me i i really like this character and i'm glad they kind of keep him to the side a little bit they don't ever put the spotlight on him too much because i think a, a little bit of him goes a very long way yeah you're happy when he shows up it's oh this guy i like this guy this guy's cool well he'll mix it up and be fun on that note it's funny i noticed watching this you know a second time was that uh, the, this, the proportions, like, he's a tall guy. He dwarfs Ron Perlman. This is like, oh my God, okay. And I read somewhere that the director, Stuart Raffle, is six foot seven. So 
we have like tall guys. We have uh, little people in the movie. It's only all kinds of different size does matter to him. It seems like <laughs> the contrast and like, it's really interesting, you know, a nice blend of characters. Uh, but yeah, but Tuesday, he's great. He's hilarious. Just fun to watch do his thing. I thought he was Donald Gibb for a moment. I thought he was Brian Blessed for a moment. Neither. All three of those actors kind of look the same. I thought he was Lyle Alzado for a second. And I thought he was uh, the guy that sang uh, Maniac from the Flashdance soundtrack. Michael Sambello. Yes. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> this guy was all five of these people at once and yet not any of them ever. I love Ron Perlman in this movie. I just wish he was in it more. Same here. And I don't know if he's supposed to be gay or if he's just like pretending to be very fey when he's doing the whole cooking scene or whatnot. There's the whole thing of how he loses a hand. And it's like, I'm waiting to hear more from him just so I can be like, no, I, I want to know more about the Zeno character. He's barely in it. Same thing with Angelica Houston. It's like when she shows up, it's like, oh, great. She's on screen. She's going to kick ass. And she cuts that guy's head off. I'm just like, this is fantastic. That's it. You know, there's barely any of her. And that I love was her, her moment. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I love the spikes on her shoulders and all that. I was just like, yeah. She wanted the set of like Flash Gordon, the 1980 Flash Gordon movie, and into this movie. You know, I was like, what are, what are you wearing? What is that whole deal? <laughs> it's not nightly. It's just like kind of kinky. You know, it's a weird steel frame over her, you know, already wonderful frame. You know, it's like, what, what's going on here with you? you know? It's funny to see her so young in this movie when the last thing I saw her in was John Wick 3. And I'm just like, oh, she's kind of getting up there. And then you watch this and you're just like, Oh, wow. Yeah, this is pre-Pritzy's Honor. This is amazing. This wasn't her debut, though. I, I was trying to find her debut, and I, it, it just wasn't it, but it was pretty early in her career, I believe. It's wild, this cast. It, they're so good. And I have to say, Jeremy West is wonderful as Zorn, even though, like I said, his motivation isn't there, but the face, his face is so good. You know, just looking at him, you're just like, oh, yeah, this is a really good villain. You know, just by casting him alone, without even knowing his motivation. You're just like, oh yeah, yeah, I could really believe this guy. And also, to me, actually, I, I loved uh, Michael D. Rhodes. I mean, he was just fun, fun too, to watch him. I, I was like, I remember, where is he from? I remember Beretta. He's Rooster from Beretta. I just, it was like a, a Tavid thing. Like, oh my God, this guy. Uh, I thought he was hilarious. And just a nice, nice foil for, you know, for Jason, our hero. <laughs> I mostly know Roberts as um, the guy who they attack in Manhunter, the, the uh, jogger. Oh, right, right. That's right. It's, it's Roberts, not Rose. Sorry, I, I'm making the wrong notes here. Another weird thing is they're watching rollerball a lot in this movie. I guess rollerball is the sport of the future, or it is just very popular on cable and everybody's just watching cable on these ships because it shows up at least twice that they're watching rollerball. I mean, that's what I, I keep thinking is like, oh, well, in the future, sports are going to be more violent. We need some violent footage. We can't afford to shoot it. So let's just license rollerball because this is the MGM library type of thing. Rollerball looks rather violent, doesn't it? It does. I like their, this idea, too, of how their ship is actually in parts and they kind of do a reverse Voltron in order to get away from the Templars at one point and just break off into these things. Because there's a lot of times where our characters will split apart and then come back together. And you never really know exactly when that's going to happen. I think there's one part when they are on uh, the planet where, um, oh gosh, there's the there's the guy. They give him a little bit more backstory, but his uh, 
he's the the dog he's like a friend of dogs is like the thing in the script and you get a dog that shows up in this movie and you're just like why is this dog here right <laughs> and then there's um uh rockney tarkington um as patch he he's pretty awesome and uh i do like that whole thing between this dog character dog bite sorry is his name dog bite and uh patch with this whole like dropping the end bomb inside of there and i was just like okay yeah to your point like some wild racial humor that's going on in this movie then again so does Spaceballs. i mean Spaceballs went through with the uh you know the the black stormtroopers with the the afro pick in the desert you know i did he made mel brooks did that gag too so you know this was the 80s <laughs> well god that the pimp robot oh my the god robot. the pimp robot <laughs> you know i've seen this movie five times this year and i forgot in the between the third and fourth viewing the pimp robot hey bloods y'all want pump some kitties <laughs> yeah no it, it went on forever too i mean he was just talking quote jive unquote forever oh, we got a we got a regular barbara billingsley here talking yeah. all that yo blood i'm like oh wow really yeah that was incredible it really was now chris brought it up i have to bring this up anyone you guys um you first saw the the space herpy egg i thought it was evil plot of the templars like i thought there was a plant of the templars that kind of but no it was just random space herpy on the ship because space herpes do that right it seemed like it was part of the manifest for the cargo that they have on board. But they're ice pirates. Why are they collecting herpes? I don't know. Well, in this ship that they have, because it's not one of their original ships, it's like they kind of need to steal this ship to get off of Mithra is that planet that they're on um, where they're about to be castrated because there's that big rush to get off of there. I think that's the ship that the Templars put the tracking device on because... There's that moment at the party that they're at where Roscoe and Jason are dressed as the eunuchs and it's like, oh, meet me upstairs or whatever, whatever the princess says. And then all of a sudden Zorn comes in and he's just like, arrest these people. And they all run out and they have that chase and you get to see Killjoy and the armor being pulled behind on the motorcycle. Then you've got that like Death Race 2000 car that's coming up on them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, that makes sense now. So. I guess at a you know a high class party in the future on Mithra, space herpes is, is, a, is a a hazard of you know, travel, intergalactic travel. I mean that is so eighties, so nineteen eighties. I know like the herpes virus did not leave us, but like herpes as a joke. I mean that whole thing in in Beverly Hills Cop where he's just like tell Victor that Ramon. The fella he met about a week ago, tell him that um, Ramon went to the clinic today, and I found out that I have um. Herpes simplex 10. I mean, that is the thing, man, is this whole herpes thing. It's really, I mean, even uh, Chris, you and I talking about um, a police squad. It's like, look out, he's got a chair. Look out, he's got this. Look out, he's got herpes. And he's trying to kiss Frank Drebin. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Do they get space herpes or does the ship have herpes? There is a moment in the script where Roscoe has something in his leg and it's the herpes gone under his skin and they're about to like orlando jones it they're they're going to uh vincent vega it with a with a needle here and then it suddenly moves and then it eventually burrows out of his shoulder and that's the moment when it's just like you know you brought what on board and how long have you known this and 
that joke turns different. They don't do that whole, like, we're, we say two things, then we reverse what the other two say. How long have you known about this? First we've heard of it. First we've heard of it. Yeah, there's a little bit less of that, but every single scene does have that button on it. Every single scene does have the little joke before we dissolve and hurry up and go to the next sequence. I appreciate that you made the non-idiot reference and I made the idiot reference of Orlando Jones it because everybody knows that from evolution. Of course, of course. That's what that reminded me of, that like the little creature was just very like, it's like it's from another movie. Because there's very few creatures in this movie. That's my issue, is there's not enough creatures. And the ones that we do see get unsummarily blown up. Or knocked on the head like the the guy in the bathroom. I mean, that one of the first jokes in this movie is a literal bathroom humor joke of the aliens sitting there on the shitter and the farting noises. I'm just like... Okay. I mean, that really sets the tone for this movie. <laughs> it speaks to its intent right away. It tells you what it's all about. Like, here we go. This kind of movie you're in for, strap yourself into your toilet because here we go. This is what you're in for. And just know that it's in very few creatures, but Spaceballs had its own space herpes, the little alien ripoff sequence, which is funny to me. It's like, wow, okay, well, that's random. There are people out online that were arguing. I, I, I know that's amazing to think of people online arguing, but people are just like, no, that space herpy thing is from Spaceballs. No, it's not. It's from this. Because those two scenes, and I kept waiting for the space herpy to put on a little top hat and be like, hello, my darling. Hello. You know, and I'm like, where is that from? And then it finally dawns on me. Oh, yeah, Spaceballs. And I'm like, and I'm going through all of these movies. I'm like, is that Galaxina? Because I know there's just like a space herpy type thing in there. And, or is it the creature wasn't nice? You know, I'm just like, what? Because you know, there are, this is not alone in being a space parody movie to the point where I'm confusing it with all of these other movies. But this was kind of, you know, like right there in that sweet spot. There were a couple beforehand. There's the, the big daddy of them all with Spaceballs a few years after this. But yeah, this one was right in the mix. Yeah, Spaceballs does it the best, right? I mean, this Space Herpes is funny, but you you get John Hurt, right? Like, that's the moment that you're like, it, it. you've nailed the parody, and not only have you nailed it, you got the guy from the movie originally to be in your movie to do it. Yes, exactly. It, it, that, that was great. And then, I mean, the line afterwards, I think, is what always sells it. I'll have what she's having. The space, I mean, that's, it's alien, it's alien. I, it's a yeah. It's a it's a cheap alien gag, but I think it works in this movie. Well, it's funny because I've only seen Spaceballs one time, but I've seen this probably dozens of times. Actually, you guys also calls to mind Dark Star. You know, kind of the original, the OG. You know, sci-fi comedy. You know, um, I don't know. It reminded me of that a little bit. You know, not in, not not as far as tone, but like okay. This is some wackiness happening in a world we don't quite understand. It's people who are outcast and frustrated and, you know, it's, I don't know, a lot of similarities. I wonder if, if Stuart, you know, Raffle, uh, it took some inspiration from that as well. Yeah. The whole beach ball thing that's going on in there. Yeah. That's a really good call. Cause I, I forget about dark star a lot and that's, you know, presages alien with the, you know, the, the Dan Dan Bannon. Bannon and everything presages star wars by a few years too if memory serves i want to say it was 76 maybe for a dark star was in 74 I, I, I it was being made for years like it was years in the making and it finally came out i want to say 74 ish it I can, could be yeah 
a black hole sucked up all this like 1970s, early 80s sci-fi and spat it out into Ice Pirates. Like there's a lot of random, you know, references and you said the Mad Max of it, the Star Wars of it. Like uh, one Star Wars thing, the um, the sort of the Pirates Den bar. That's like the cantina, obviously. It's totally the cantina. When you have two two booger jokes in 60 seconds, that's the classic right there. <laughs> like alien just picking his nose. And then Ron Perlman does the same gag, like, I swear, a minute later. It's just amazing. Um, every 12-year-old like loves boogers in Star Wars, like, out of the seats. Just happy, you know, orgasmic, you know. It's amazing. Well, it also features dismemberment, just like in Star Wars. The guy getting his head cut off. There's the hand with Ron Perlman, but there are heads being cut off like crazy in this movie. There's the guy at the bar, dog bite, like we were talking about. But then even at the beginning, there's all of the robots and at least one of them gets its head cut off, which I, I would really like to think that this is all foreshadowing for the Bruce Valanche character, but I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I'm not going to, I'm not going to say that they take credit for that, but remember Buck Rogers, the TV show with Twiggy, the robot. If Twiggy had sex with a Michelin man, the Michelin man, and then made babies, that's these robots. They're chunky. They're awkward. They're not exactly charismatic. They're useless. <laughs> mostly. They make a few references. They never really explain it well enough for me anyway, but this whole idea of there being different classes of robots. And so like there's the junk ones that Roscoe brings aboard. And again, one of them has a short and it keeps kicking out. And I didn't realize that until I read the script. And then there's the, the one robot who's a little bit taller and he's got a better sword and he is on the side of the Templars. And I'm like, oh, okay, so that's like a different brand or a different style of robot. And then there's the uh, one that they find, which is Katrina's uh, father. The Omega. Like, the Omega robot. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, they have robots that look like people. Why don't they just use those like crazy? <laughs> but apparently it's all to do with economics. Like this movie has a lot to do with economics and the haves and the have nots, which is really saying something. Of course, Roscoe's line, he rebuilds one of the robots, can't remember his name. And, you know, and Jason asks, why is he black? He's like, well, I want him to be perfect. Was like, that was great. <laughs> Nailed it. <laughs> It was, yeah. And again, it was sometimes those jokes work and sometimes you're cringeworthy and you want to crawl into your own head, you know, and, and hide. That was just kind of a wonderful moment. I love that class warfare. I mean, I think in the sense of if, if any world building, it was about okay, a bunch of the Templars to me were just the rich frat boys, the rich jerks who you're supposed to hate, and the rest of us who are just scrounging around for, you know, water or anything. You know, they, got, they did a decent job that I thought. I kind of felt for the, you know, pirate class and everybody else. I mean, there's the shoe shine guy who's like, from now on, there will be no spit with the shine because they can't even afford spit these days because they don't have enough water. I love that print books still exist in this future. They're reading books, actual books. It cracks me up. Like this high tech rollerball world, they're reading like these hardcovers for like, you know, a vital clue or something. It's, it cracked me up as well. The little thing. There's actually a thing in the script too where it's like reading an electronic book. And I was just like, oh, okay. So guess we couldn't afford that special effect of having like an iPad or whatever. It's like, you know, now you watch like Star Trek, the next generation and you're like, oh, they're just walking around with a bunch of tablets all the time. That's what, five years after this, when the first, uh, Star Trek TNG comes out, it's like, okay. Yeah. yeah. That was 87, 88, I think roughly. Yeah. 
They go out to a place called Sweetwater. I do like this whole gag with the uh, frog lady that uh, they originally think is a man and then send uh, Katrina over there. And suddenly the frog lady's all, you know, working on Jason. I, I never really noticed the long tongue gag until I watched this again recently. That was pretty cool. She's my favorite part of the entire movie. I Isn't really great? like her. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> that noise. That, that noise just yeah, and then and then just so unceremoniously killed by a bunch of Mad Max Brian Trenchard Smith ripoffs. How could you do that to the frog lady? She is I just it's again, there's just weird non sequiturs in this movie. Like the frog character is from what? Who knows? It is inspired by what? Who cares? Well, was she a frog or a horny toad? Oh, oh toad lady. my oh, right? God. Come on. Wow. She was very Randy. She was Randy. Oh. She, you know, just saying. She Fucking. was also in Beretta. And one of her first appearances was in a TV movie directed by Dan Curtis, our friend from Kolchak, called The Great Ice Ripoff. So this was in her blood, man. Frog Lady is my favorite part of the movie. Just such a weird, strange character. But yet, again, kind of just works in this movie for whatever reason. I thought maybe she self-sabotaged her vehicle to save the others. But is that or she was blown up by them? I couldn't tell. It was happening so fast. It was a quick cut. I didn't want to rewind it to figure out what happened with her. Because if it's a sacrifice play, she's my hero of all time. She's wonderful. Uh, If not, then that kind of sucks for her. As a fifth time watcher now, of course, this movie. I'm not the expert. <laughs> <laughs> I interpret it as she just got blown up by the Mad Max guy. I, I loved her so much. I thought she would do that for, for you know, for Jason and Roscoe and the, the princess at this point. Yeah. Lanky Nibs, fucking fantastic character name. Uh, I really like the actor, Robert Simmons, who plays him, but he just comes in. And he's just like, yeah, I got old. I, I hit a time warp and here's a whole bunch of exposition. I'm like, Okay. Great. All right. Oh, these bad guys are going to come kill us. We we should go here, Lanky. Oh, leave me behind. I'm old. It was so ape Pagoda for fucking Barney Villard. Just leave me behind. I'm old. And then he dies in like the worst way, too. He could have just died. They're like, oh, no, he, uh, his back is broken. At least they saved the the animals. So that that's important. You know. The random goats, the, uh, what do they have? Goats and donkeys. little ones. Little donkeys. Wild donkeys. Well, 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 there's a point in the movie where the, during the, uh, during the fantastic <laughs> climactic time warp finale, where the, where the donkeys are baby donkeys and then they are grown donkeys. That's right. Later <laughs> in the scene. <laughs> you know, you gotta get that donkey joke in there. It's the donkey joke that they're here for. Totally that, and also the the the, the sly Caddyshack reference, all the little kind of gophers popping up out of the ground, right? I was like, okay, this is wait for Chevy Chase to show up, you know, trying to take them out or Dan Aykroyd, you know. Or, I was waiting for a refrigerator to land right by them and Harrison Ford to fall out of it. Got him real good. They didn't even know they were parroting that. Before we get further away from the space herpy bug than than I than than I would like to get. Uh, I would ask you guys or let you know that the tagline for the movie may actually be the reason that the space herpes joke is in the movie. So there's a bunch of C and then something. So it's C, a universe on the rocks. This one's fantastic. C, great special affects. Yes. Wow. (laughs) That shit's hilarious. C, space herpes, the love bug. Wow. Wow. (laughs) Nice. 
Wow. I won. I. Uh, so that's, that's beautiful. A, that's a hell of a stretch for a joke. It's a stretch. Give it to him. Yeah. <laughs> Please. I, I was actually wondering how high the executive was on Coke to, who greenlit this, this movie. Not think everyone was high on Coke. Just this fucking out of their minds, you know. The, the, the copywriters, the, the, the poster guys, and everybody must have been just, you know, high as giraffe balls. Just, I mean, those taglines alone, special, a- special affects is, that's like, that's like police squad level of wordplay. Yeah. Wow. That's incredible. We got to grow up the, the time warp thing. That to me, honestly, if you know the time warp part is my favorite part of the movie. Maybe I'm alone in this. I just thought, I don't know. It kind of clicked in the gear for me when we're almost like they did it better than Interstellar with Christopher Nolan. They kind of did the whole times, you know, I just, it felt more genuine. <laughs> I actually agree with you. I like the climax. It's, it's a complete mess, but I like it because they just, they, you know, they're like, you know what we're going for it. And then we're going to have Robert Urich come back and play their child. Like whatever, fuck it. Who cares? Like they commit to it. And because they commit to it, it kind of works. It's so different in that script. So in that, they find the Whedon as the Bruce Valange character. Um, but in the script, his name is crazy credo C R E E D O. So kind of like Greedo, but a little different. Uh, they find crazy credo. He's got all the Amazon women around him, which is very funny that it's Bruce Valange playing this kind of Lord of the Amazon women. They, the Amazon women ride around on, unicorns and they I love that unicorns versus robots by the way a whole, whole subgenre we didn't get to see ever except this movie they eventually leave that planet he's still also just a, a head and who uh, sold his body for gambling debts again talking about like the has the have nots I suppose they find a ship that is out ahead of them, they go to that ship and that ship has been in a time warp. So this whole thing of like nanny dying and all of these characters getting older and stuff and the pregnancy, that's not part of it though. They keep this idea of, and now this is the weirdest thing in the world and stay with me here, guys, when they get over to the ship, there are a bunch of old people. There's some corpses and there's a ton of babies. And as they're going through the time warp, the babies grow up incredibly rapidly and the babies just attack them with, uh, with no quarter. They just, these babies are grown up. I want to say that they're going to be like grown men, maybe wearing diapers or maybe they're just naked. I don't know, but they're just fighting with Jason and Roscoe and some of the other pirates and they they eventually have to kill all these grown up babies. <laughs> that sounds kind of awesome, actually. It's like an <laughs> unintentional prequel to uh, Nothing But Trouble with those giant babies in that movie. Is that the connection you were hoping somebody would make, Mike? <laughs> I wish you would get out of my head, Chris. You're, because that's yeah. why we that's why we're here, man. It's so <laughs> strange, yeah. Those two giant babies played by John Candy and Dan Aykroyd in those fat baby suits. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, that's what this movie really needed was was that. That's what I was missing. Somehow this climax actually works better than the one in the script. Because the one in this one in the script is weird. And the one in the movie is weird too. The one in the movie is very weird where it's just like, oh, we're out of the time warp. What happened to the other ship? We don't know. 
They were one degree off, and that sent them out into the outer limits. Like, all right. And they're frozen in time forever. Yeah, they're just stuck in like this limbo of non-time, I guess, which is fascinating. But in the script, going back to that, they are still around, and they pursue Jason's ship to the seventh planet, which is Earth, which they actually show in the trailer. They show Earth (laughs) in the trailer. They don't call it Earth. They don't know the word for earth obviously they just call it the seventh world they end up having like a crash over the water and apparently i i want to say everybody from the templar ship is dead but jason and all of his folks are fine they get rescued by a bunch of surfers and the last shot is like them being surfed to the beach and all of the ice pirates i'm like okay I think even Nanny gets to to be out there as well. So hanging ten, yeah, believe that. Because I mean, the whole idea of the time warp just ending and everybody's back to normal, and that was weird. Yeah, it's so strange. <laughs> it's called we wrote ourselves into a corner and we don't know how to get ourselves out. And so they're just like, and I mean, it's better than them saying it was all a dream. Somehow Palpatine returned. Maybe made up or apocryphal, but I read that, that Stuart um, said that you know. The original anyway, he actually has shot a scene of they fly over Miami Beach, modern day Miami Beach. It's just like, okay, that's interesting. It's Zuma Beach in the in the script. That was just kind of fat. It's, it's, it reminds me of uh, Star Trek Four. You know, they come down, it's like, oh, look, you know. <laughs> it reminds me of the uh, actually the Star Trek ride in Las Vegas where you're like at La- that you show up at Las Vegas. You get like taken <laughs> from Las Vegas. I think that would have worked as the ending of this movie better than it worked in Alien Resurrection, which effectively has the same ending as this movie and also features Ron Perlman. Earth, what a shithole. This time, they're on Earth. Just kidding. No, they're not. (laughs) Stop lying to us, creators of Alien. You're never going to put that movie. And when you do that movie, you can't help but put the Predator in it and then shoot it at night with no lights. Uh, Also, the moment, the time war moment was, uh, was, was, it sort of cracked me up and also horrified me was the pregnancy thing, the awkward pregnancy conversation. Like, Oh, you knocked me up. Like, well, we, you know, it's like, what? <laughs> weird, awkward, like, dude, he's all odd about it. Well, they have that weird, uh, like, demolition man sex scene, you know, and, but in the rain, and I don't know if that's real rain or if it's just all like, if they're in like the, um, a hollow chamber or whatever. But well, that was right before the robot gave, uh, Mary Crosby the business. What's funny is, I, I feel that the, the, the lines, after a while, the double entendres were so predictable. It was like, I knew it'd be a joke coming. And when Princess says, in the, the rain, the passionate scene, she says, shouldn't you be at the controls? Like, oh, yeah, as he goes, you know, do the controls. I, I was like, okay, here we go. It's like Porky's in space. This is not, you know, <laughs> this is not space balls. This is not, I don't know. That's what it should said. See special affect C, Porky's in space. I mean, that's the thing. I can't think of a, a very many other space parody movies that have the level of sexual jokes that this one does. And they don't all work, obviously. Oh, God. I mean, they pull the, the ring out of Bruce Wentz's uh, mouth, and, and they, they ask, juggling, what else you got in there? And he responds, pitch perfect, nothing. Would you care to make a deposit? I'm like, wow, what? whoa. <laughs> Even in the, the script, Jason reaches into his pants, and you think that he is basically going to mouth rape this crazy credo slash whedon character but instead he pulls out a fucking feather from his pants and you're like what like really you were gonna go there with this thing i couldn't believe it oh he's a he's a head i always wanted to get a little head yeah he's never gotten any complaints 
those moments kept me actually super riveted. It was like, you know, yeah, the special effects are janky, the plot's all over the place, but you know it's a joke coming every two minutes. Some kind of crude jokes that'll make you either roll your eyes or cringe or want to cry, but it's going to come and it's gonna, it'll be fun, you know, experience those those moments. They were constant. They never stopped. I mean, it might sound like I've been just ripping on this movie like crazy, and there's a lot to rip on, you know, like, again, the time warp ends, the movie ends probably two minutes after that, if that long. It just... Boom, we're With the done. freeze frame, even of Ron Perlman, I loved the freeze frame. I and you know what? We you kind of mentioned it, but to, again, the jankiness of the movie. I like that the Indiana Jones uh, font gets used for this movie's poster. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I enjoyed that so much. It's like front and center too, right there. Like no shame. Well, going back to the the Mad Max planet scene where they, you know, he sort of he jumps to the Mad Max uh, vehicle. He's, uh, he's dragging, he's literally dragging them uh, Indiana Jones style behind the other vehicle. And he kind of whips, he sort of catches the wheel, jumps up, and he pulls a sword. It's like, that was kind of a cool moment. I kind of, I bought that action moment, but very Indiana Jones. I mean, it was like super indie fighting Nazis, you know, except to hear it's mutants from the desert or something. No, it's just kind of wonderful. And I'm guessing those were all supposed to be uh, mercenaries, like the, the dog. Patches guys, yeah. Yeah, dog biting patch, like all of their bounty hunter type character so basically they're the bounty hunters from uh empire strikes back one of them is named cojones <laughs> which is yeah balls in spanish <laughs> he's the one that gets run. he's the one that gets run over get him cojones run of course of course <laughs> <Guys>. <laughs> it's i mean you know if you're if you're looking for movies like this that aren't this there aren't very many I, again that's this is kind of in a you know that's the that's the beauty of your show, Mike. The projection booth is these. This is the kind of movie that your show covers. It's there's very few movies like this out in the world. It's its own thing, and that's why people. I mean, there's this movie has eleven thousand ratings on IMDb. That's not a small number. That's a lot. No, this movie is beloved by a lot of people, and I have to count myself as one of them. I mean this. It was a nostalgia trip for me to rewatch this again after all these years. And I'm just like, I was thrilled to be able to speak to Bruce Valanche about this, to be able to speak to Stuart Raffle about this. I'm just like, yeah, but I want to hear the search. I want to know how this thing came to be because it is such a, an odd animal. And having this conversation makes you love it all the more. I and mean, I'll admit when I was rewatching for the first time, like, what the hell is this? <laughs> I was watching a friend like Leonard Belief. It's space or beast. And then it's a jive robot. And it's like, I'm like, like, like texting, like, you will believe that I'm watching. And I was so, I'm like, but you know, having this conversation makes me think, yeah, this is a, this is a, a rare beast that needs to be called and protected. We should, we should love this beast. And we, and, and you know, <laughs> we've kind of mentioned the, the alien influences with the space or beast. The ship that they're on is pretty much an, a spaceship straight out of alien, like straight out of the alien universe. Like if you look at on IMDb, just the screen grabs from the movie. If you take the actors from this movie out and threw the actors from Alien in, like Sigourney Weaver and John Hurt, you wouldn't be able to tell the difference. And that, again, it just kind of works. Again, they're kind of sending everything up all at once, but not parodying, just kind of setting characters in that world and saying, we're going to tell a funnier story than you're used to. But it is still a sci-fi story. I mean, they're searching for a magical possibly non-existent planet that solves all the world's problems or the universe's problems. You're right, though. It's like dirty space freighters. They're like truckers in space. It's that, that Lin Man 
just disgusting, janky things don't work right. There's herpes in the closet. You know, all that kind of stuff is yeah, that's what you imagine. You know, I, I I drove cross country recently, and I've been you know through gas stations with trucker showers. The shit's real. It's legit. Yeah, that's what this is. If it has that same alien lived in feel, but that was, I mean, again, that's the thing that everybody always says about the original, at least New Hope, is that Star Wars universe feels lived in. True. You Very know, true. Fucking Mos Eisley is not like whatever the place was in those other movies, the casino world. It's not like that. It's not clean and polished. It's, you know, it's dirty and grimy and gross. You, you wouldn't want to be in Mos Eisley. Like, you just, you you wouldn't. Like, you wouldn't want to be on the ice pirate ship either. But that's what makes these movies so great, is they do have a sense of place. And they, they have no problem being like, yeah, it looks janky, but they get it, we're trying. We're not just, you know, CGI. I mean, again, this is way before you could CGI the shit out of everything, but... I think I read that, actually, some of the sets they reused, repurposed from uh, Logan's Run. I think I read, like, the domes from the one planet... Even like the, I guess the pirates world, you know, the pirate planet. There's like a lot of this lot of stuff they kind I guess it was MGM, I suppose, right? It must have just, or no, was it MGM or somewhere they had this stuff in mothballs, I guess. They dug it out for this movie, which is kind of great. I do love that. They might have reused a couple shots from Logan's run, especially like the outside type of when Logan is chasing after one of the runners, they kind of show like the dome city and some of the smaller things. I want to say that one of those shots is used, but I could be wrong. No, that's, that's probably right. <laughs> that sounds right to me. Well, I know there's one thing we're about to hear from Bruce Valanche where he talks about, oh, uh, Mel Brooks just came in and used our sets for Spaceballs. I don't think that's true because there was a three-year gap between the films, but I could see them, again, pulling stuff out of mothballs and just using a lot of this set because these sets look really good and the lighting is really well done. Like looking at some of those stills that you're talking about, Chris, it's just like, oh, look at all that nice fill light in the background and like, yeah, that whole used universe thing. I really like that. And I'd like, even when the castration machine, you could see body parts behind those workers and stuff. It's just like, oh man, they just disassemble people. It looks like, and they can, you know, if they don't like parts, they'll just take them right off of you. And the dogs kind of come up and they sniff their leftovers. Those kind of, moments, you know, that's what a whole movie set in that, the castration factory. I just want to, well, the workers were fun, you know? <laughs> They're enjoying themselves. Yeah. The Shaving old, people old down. and man who can't hold. You know, they 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 have this whole factory that can do all this stuff, and they just have an old man with a straight razor. I just love that. It's like, that's there only for the gag. It's there for the gag and no other reason. There's there's no mayor in the future. There's no, like, you know, chemical they can use to, you know, uh, give it air. No, it's this old dude. With a shaky hand. He's been doing it for 70 years. He does a great job, though. Robert Yurk lo really looks good after he gets that shave, I have to say. <laughs> it's fair. <laughs> I would have liked to have seen Ron Perlman in that scene, though. I mean, this movie does make me question how tall is Ron Perlman, just because he does look like a normal-sized person in this, and everything else, he just always seems like a giant. Ormatusix is just so huge and just a you know big dude. He must be, right? I that's gotta be. Well, he's a former football player, right? So Right. Yeah. Ron Perlman is six feet tall. Really? That's it? Yeah. So like you're taller than Ron Perlman, Mike, and I'm as tall as Ron Perlman. I'm two inches taller than Ron Perlman. I didn't know that. I feel better by myself now. This isn't okay. <laughs> you're taller than Hellboy. I mean, he was probably where he was probably wearing lifts in that movie. He had to have been wearing lifts. I so. have to figure he does that often then, because you think about him as like the weightlifter from uh, City of Lost Children, 
or the beast in Beauty and the Beast. I mean, I just always picture him, even when he's uh, squaring off against Sigourney Weaver in, in uh, Alien 4. It's just I think of him as being a very tall gentleman. Maybe he just he just looks like a tall guy. That's what it is. Some people just Could have be. tall guy energy. TGE is what they call it. <laughs> yeah, that's what it is. All right, guys, let's go ahead. We're going to take a break and we're going to play a pair of interviews. First up, we'll hear from writer-director Stuart Raffle. And after that, we'll hear from Wendon himself, Mr. Bruce Valanche. And we'll be back with both of those right after these brief messages. Hi, I'm Jason. And I'm Jules. And, and we do in filmographies. We've compiled a list of actors. We draw a name at random and tackle their entire acting filmography from start to finish. Or at least as much of it that still exists and hasn't been lost to time. Jason loves actor Billy Crudup in films like Jesus' Son or Almost Famous. But will he love Billy in movies like Monument Avenue or World Traveler? No, they're not good. And Jules loves actor Rada Mitchell in films like High Art and Pitch Black. But will he love Rada in movies like When Strangers Appear or Love and Other Catastrophes? You'll just have to tune in to find out. Some of the names that pop up might surprise you. Some of the films as well. So join us every Saturday on the podcast app of your choice or via YouTube as We Do in Filmographies. I'm actually trying to push another movie now called the the Ice Warrior, and this this the one that the Ice Pirates was one of the earlier films that I got to do. It was interesting making that film because it was at the the time when MGM was changing hands. It was sold to an African company or a guy in Africa, and then Kirk Gorian bought it. And um, the politics were just rife with trying to get. I think they always are in the studios anyway. I usually do independent films. In this, the studio system, there are so many people have to put their imprint on the script that it's like a, it's like a water hydrant. You know what I mean? Everybody has this on it sort of thing. And so you have to go through the rigmarole of, of making all those people happy. It took me two years with rewrites and fiddling around and artwork and things like that. It was nothing like the story that we came up with. It was this company... MGM could only borrow eight million to make a movie at that time, so it had to be done for that sort of price, which means it's pretty hard to do a union film for that sort of money. So I took a lot of the the making of the robots off the stage and out of the company and had it done separately to try and make it cheaper to to achieve. Because it was less ex expensive movie than it should have than it required, really, I decided to go comedy with it. Because it's very forgiving comedy, as in as much as feels, you know, you have a space therapy running around a ship. The notion of it is the subject matter of make, that makes you laugh. It's not so much the creature itself. So, it, so, so you use the comedy as a sleight of hand to make the movie look like it's actually bigger than it probably was. When it was finished, I'd shot a shot. It was looking for the water planet. And I'd shot some footage of a, the beach in Malibu with all the people on it. And I wanted to have a shot of the spaceship coming down. And the last thing is, they're on the beach with all the, all the people in their bikinis and their clothes and the water crashing on the beach, which would have really taken the story the full arc. But one of the producers decided he didn't want that and cut it out before he ran 2,000 prints. So you, you see the politics of it. 
I was so upset when I saw that that I had to go out and get a bottle of booze and take it, chug it like it. I don't really drink just to calm my nerves. I felt I was going to have a heart attack. I felt like smacking the guy in the head. Anyway, that's what happened there. So the movie was, you know, it was made for that price and under the, you know, the time requirements. I think. So it was a hard film to make in, in that respect and everything. The new one I'm trying to push, I just want to make it as my last great movie sort of thing. Not that I've had a great movie, but I mean a really great movie. Something that will be up for awards and everything. And the subject matter of that film is called The Ice Warrior. It's about the world after a nuclear, 100 years after a nuclear conflict, which gets almost like what we're facing today. I mean, it's just ridiculous. These people in Europe, after everything they've gone through, and they start another stupid war for nothing, you know what I mean? And destroy a whole country. It's so reminiscent of Hitler's business and everything. But anyway, the movie is about that, and it's about people that dig down to survive into the garbage dumps of the, the, the 100 years ago when the nuclear winter started. See, what happens in a nuclear winter, the sun never reaches the planet, so everything dies off. There were nobody can survive on anything because there's nothing growing hardly. And it's the story of the people in that world and about a boy who discovers one of those gramophone record players and can play music for the first time in a hundred years because everything metallic, I mean electronic, is rusted away and everything. And it's got huge battles in it over a, a person. He's called the Coal King who has built a castle and the frozen expanse, and they do it. Everything is built with blocks of ice. They, they cut them out of the ice, and they build this huge edifice with big doors and all the things that goes on in it. And it's an interesting story because it's got everybody goes. It's like the Napoleonic Wars when they had the people um, when Napoleon had them work fighting in these blocks, and they all. So I, I envisioned the war that they, takes place in front of the castle and is kind of Napoleonic in its scope. In other words, huge armies of men all wearing ice skates because they're on the ice and battleships, which like galleons with sails and everything, sailing on the ice on runners, steel runners. And some of those runners, they have kind of races with them in Scandinavia, and they can go like 50 miles an hour, so they're pretty impressive. And the stories about all of that and a lot more interesting characterizations um, to make it an interesting story about the motivations that the Ice Warrior has, why he's going to the castle, and the kid is going to use his music to go there because the king loves music. So that's what I'm working on at the moment, along with a TV series I'm just finishing writing. And that's it. That's what I'm, that's what I'm putting my energies into now. But it, the business has become very difficult, Mike. It's become very difficult because a film like that, you have to have a big superstar. And the ice where I, 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 you know, is, you know, it's got the boy and his wife in it, and he has the ice warrior. I don't want, you know, if they're in the future, they're all starving and everything. I don't want somebody who's like, blah, blah, you know what I mean? 
he has to be slim down. He's got to be lean, mean, instead of a monster guy. You know, they can't use the rock because he's too exaggerated. He's obviously on steroids and obviously, or was on steroids, and he's obviously a big white weightlifter. You know, so you have to have a realistic person. Hugh Jackson would be a great person for the lead in that. So I'd like to try and get the script to him, but you never know. It's, it's surrounded by gatekeepers, as you know, and they ward off everything to just channel every picture that gets made through their ownership or their clients, you know what I mean? And unfortunately, I've lost all my agents recently. I'm on my own out there fighting the good fight. How did you even get into the business? I grew up on a farm in England. I had a degree in agriculture. I left England on my birthday when I was just turning 19 on the Queen Mary. Came here on the, the ship, got seasick for the whole trip nearly. I was I had this romantic idea about being a sailor, going around the world, and it was terrible. You know, I mean, if you have a, you know, that tendency to get seasick, it's just terrible. And I came here, and I went to work on a farm in in Minnesota. Then it was just freezing cold, and I decided I just had to go to California and just got on the bus with my last fifty dollars. And I got off the bus, and people would give me money just when like when we stopped driving across the country, buy me a, a beer or buy me a meal or something. And I came to California, and I saw an ad in the paper here for a company that rents wild animals to the movies. So I tried to get them because I knew a lot about animals. I trained horses. In fact, I came second on a big race in England with the horse that I trained. Because I'm six foot six and heavy, and the horse, when it had a jockey on him, and he thought he was levitating in it. <laughs> so he could really, really run, you know. I came here and I got a job on a ranch renting wild animals that rented wild animals to the movies. And within six months, I was in Africa doing a movie with Capucine and Trevor Howard and Bill Holden in Kenya. And I was there for six months on that picture, which I loved because I loved Africa. I loved all the, the nature. I liked the wilderness of it all. It was like a grand adventure. I guess that's the main thing I always liked about the movies. You never do the same thing twice. And every film, if it's, at least if it's kind of outdoorsy, is an adventure. And you go all around the world to find the places. Now, maybe you do it all with CGI, which is a big difference. Um, it's, it's, it's amazing. I went to see the lion guys. They have lions and tigers and all these, these things, elephants they used to rent. When I started my own business after I went to work for this first company, the thing is, I went to see The Lion King, and the lions in that were better than the lion that I had in real life. I thought, holy moly, this is like, they're amazing, you know? They've studied it, they've exaggerated a few of the, the actions and the personality of the, the cats and everything. So it was, it was it's really changing, because now there's no, you know, when I did I did a movie with jo Jodie Foster in it, and the first movie she ever did, when she was like seven, I think, or eight, and with a lion, she rode the lion in the movie and things like that. It was sort of done, you like, oh, you had to be nervous all the time. Now you can just put her on a, on a pedestal and then paint the lion underneath her. 
<laughs> and that's the that's the joy of you know doing films that way. I've always done films independently, basically. So there was a low budget, you know, two, three, four million. The, the Ice Pirates was, was eight million, which is nothing. And my wife's working on a, a movie for Sony, and the but and it's it's just a horror film, and the budget's like a huge amount of money, close to twenty grand, billion. I mean, and it's just a little movie. So everything has gone up. Everything's you know costing more money. I guess that's the horror of the, the system we're living in right now, isn't it? So I read an early draft of Ice Pirates, and the scope of it is wild. That you even have character that's basically like a ghost that's following them around and it's just amazing how how much it changed over the time oh yeah they hired me because they, they'd seen a film that i'd made in mexico with anthony quinn in it and it was called high risk that's one of my favorite films but the company that was distributing it went out that went bankrupt the week it came out and we never got a decent print, so we don't really have a decent print of it anymore. And it's, it's one of my best movies because Anthony Quinn is just amazing. I had James Coburn in it, Lindsay Wagner, James Brolin, who's a real close friend of mine. That's when we first became good friends. And we made it in Mexico with a poor Mexican crew. I had to have a book on how to speak Spanish. As I was sitting there directing the movie, I pretty well learned enough Spanish to, to curse at least in that language, which is saying that most directors have to have a little bit. So that was it. So that was really my first studio movie, mostly the Ice Pirates. It was it was fun to me. It was hard. With I had John Matuzak in it. He was the, the linebacker for the Raiders, and he was famous for his power and nastiness and everything. And he came on the film, said, you know, John, I said, I love you to do the part here, but you, you have a, you know, you have a reputation for being a bit of a bad boy and everything. And I said, you can't do that on this. So we'd have enough money to, to adjust to you and everything. And I said, now I know you've got a bad back. Said, oh yeah, I'm just getting over it. I said, well, I will jump on your back if you start messing around with this film. He said, oh, I won't do that. So that's how I first work with him on the pitch. He's actually my favorite part of the film. He gives such a great, funny performance. Oh, he, he was good, wasn't he? It was, it was a lovely crew to, to, to work, I mean, cast to work with. I think the cameraman may have tried to do uh, make it a little too subtle in the light, you know, and you miss some of the action, like the, the space up, you couldn't see it half the time because the, the lighting, it was underlit. And space odysseys can afford to be overlit a little bit because it is, you know, we imagine, and you know, it, whatever you want it to be, it's in space. So that was really studied it. Well, I hadn't by that, that time. So that was that film. And uh, then I did the Philadelphia Experiment. I love that one as well. That was really fun. It was interesting because the cameraman on that film, I'm trying to remember what his name was. Dick Bush, I think. He was from England, and he was a very stodgy English person. Not like me. I'm not with that stodgy, I don't think. He was a lovely guy, but he liked to shoot art pieces. Every shot should be like a piece of art, 
God knows, don't pad off it or move or track or anything because, well, you're disturbing everything I lit, you know what I mean? So the movie has a distinctive look, which I applaud him for because it was much more static than it could have been, but it looks grand in the in the frame because he was so good at finding the light and and that was fun to do on that film. The other thing that was interesting about that film was that the when I was go, went to the Navy to try and get permission to do that story, it was a book, and it was a pretty popular book. And they said to me, no, you can't make that. It's, it's all bullshit, you know what I mean? It was, in a refined manner of speaking, we can't give you permission. So in the end, I went down to South Carolina and found the hood in Charleston and in a naval museum there. And there was another ship next to it. Like, I think it was a, I forget naval term for it. It was a pretty impressive, not a battleship, but it was a court. Anyway, and there was a submarine next to it as well. So it was like a set right there on a river at the entrance to the harbor in um, in Charleston. So it was, a, it was a very fun piece to do that with that amount of things. But the budget, the budget was not very big on that either. But the, the two producers were wonderful to work with, and I had a great time making it. And, um, you know, and of course we had Nancy Allen and Michael Bray on that. And, and she was the ex-wife of somebody very famous, a director, I forget what his name is, that Ryan DeBarma. And then, of course, Michael Prey had just been discovered in a Bannon movie. Right, yeah, Eddie and the Cruisers. Yeah, exactly, which I loved him in. So I was very happy to get the two of them to be in the, in the film. It was really smart, too. It's like this fish-out-of-water science fiction tale, but the water is current times, which makes it probably a lot easier to shoot. Yeah, exactly. It's much easier. And the ships look like, you know, a battleship or an aircraft carrier. They, look, they haven't changed much in, in time. The newest ones have just plagues of metal around them. But prior to this last, you know, decade, they, well, they haven't changed that much. So I got to work on those, you know, on a battleship, on the action, the hood and everything, and do a lot of the interiors on it and everything. Which is really great. You, all of a sudden, you're doing you're doing an, an eight million dollar movie, or whatever it was, it was, something pretty close to that. But you have a set that cost two billion. <laughs> this you've got you've got this huge, you know, piece of steel that they molded and made to fight in the Pacific. You know, so and that that actually that boat actually or ship actually was in the end of the, the Japanese war, you know, it was Second World War. So it was fun. And then I, I actually did worked a lot with Jim Brown on the series that he did called Pensacola. And we did it in San Diego. It wasn't actually in Pensacola. And we went and we filmed a, a, an airport, which was a naval airport. And sometimes you'd have like 10... F-18s all lined up and you could film them if, if I had somebody with me and everything. It was really remarkable doing that. So you have all these experiences. Then they sort of in, invited, said, well, come and stay on the boat. And well, I looked how cramped it was. Oh, no, I'm going to spend the night going out with you guys on that boat. It's just too little for me. I, my head hit everything in the, on the, the way down to the, 
the guts, the belly of the boat, the boat where we was stationed in it. But it was very, it was a lot of fun. And I had my own, in England, we call it an equerry. I had my own officer who followed me around and made sure that all the, the, the nomenclature was correct and everything like that. Then he came down from another airport, another base in his own F-16. And he, Friday night, he said, well, I'll see ya. And I'd be driving home and he'd just, <laughs> he'd be back there. In 15 minutes, it was going to take me three hours on the freeway. And so that was the other interesting character. How did you get involved with Mac and me? Well, just somebody recommended, recommended me to the producer of that. That was a very interesting twist, that was, because the producer, he produced a lot of big movies. He was the Lion producer. All the Oceans films. All yeah. the Oceans. He'd done all those, and he did the Karate Kid interview. And he wanted to make his own movie, so he taught this guy who was a produce supplier but for um, McDonald's, put the money up for it. He said, but you have to just give all the profits to the McDonald's, Ronald's charity, which, you know, else give its mothers and fathers the money to stay in a hotel when the children are having operations. I think it was a very, very good thing. So we... He called me up, and I never worked with him before, but he knew, he knew Jim Brawl and a bunch of my other friends. And I, I've always written basically everything I've done, so I have the ability to do both. He said, come down, I'm doing a movie, I want you to direct it. So I went down, he had a place next to Warner Brothers, and he had all the crew already on the payroll. And I was like, so what's the story? What's the script and everything? He said, well, it's... It's called Mac and Me, and it's about like you know a family of aliens that show up here and everything. And and I said, well, what's the script? He said, well, we haven't got the, really the script that we want to shoot yet, and we were hoping you would write it. And I said, well, we got a crew here. There's like ten people. There are when the, the the cameraman and this and everything else. I said, and he says we're going to be doing the prep for the movie as you're writing it on the weekends. And that's how it came about. And I wrote that script on the weekends, basically, and then locked myself in a room and then came back to the office on Monday and filled everybody in on what I'd invented. So I've done quite a few films like that. I did this one called Tammy and the Teenage T-Rex, which was a movie where a guy calls me up. I'd worked with him before a film in Africa, and he was Dutch and everything. And he said with a thick Germanic accent, you know, I have a T-Rex for three weeks. I want to make a movie with it. I said, well, is it trained? And he said, ha, 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 very funny. He said, no, it's, it's a, an animated model that's going to be uh, on display in a game, in a, a park in, in Texas. And I have it for two weeks, no, three weeks for you to do the movie. But the thing is, it has to be we start making it in two weeks. There was another one. So I, I sat down with a friend of mine, and we saw it was a lot of pot because it's a comedy, but outrageous, and it became an outrageous piece. He looked at it, and he said, oh, no, this is not what I wanted. They gave me 980000 And he pitched all the time about us making this movie, badly, what, you know, but we made the deal. And then he saw the movie, so he re-edited it. 
And I just walked away. I said, I, I just can't deal with this. Ten years later, this guy calls me up from Texas, and he's borne the rights right now because he, he found my original edit cut. And so we put it out. They became a big cult classic. It's been, I've done interviews like we're doing now in England, in Australia, all around the bloody world, where people are interested in this movie and the craziness that it was. That was an interesting project. We finished the script the night before we started shooting. I'm sure you're aware of Mac and me and the Conan O'Brien connection. Oh, I love his, his jokes and everything. And he always interjected the show of the kid going down the hill and flying. And he did it over and over again. I actually wanted to do a sequel to the movie and put him in it. But I just never could get through all the pieces. You know, the producer fell out with the guy that put the money up. And then he has Mac in a box in his house and all this. It would be so much easier to make it now because it's all animated. They actually create the the creatures with markers, you know how they have markers on it, on them. So you could actually do anything with it. It can run, it can jump, it can dive, it can swim, it could do everything. It would be actually fun to do something like that. And I was thinking that he would be such, he's such a good comedian. He'd be great for it. But, you know, you can only do so much. And the hardship thing is getting the money and putting little pieces together. It takes so much more energy than writing a bloody movie or even making it sometimes. Just with a lot of people that really don't know much about the movie business in the, ind- in the independent world. I'm not sure that doesn't apply to even the ones that aren't in the, <laughs> in the independent world. You talked about how you write almost everything that you direct. That has to make you a threat, you know, double threat that you can write and direct, which is great. The thing is, when you think it through as a script, you have to visualize it in your mind before you can put pen to paper because you have to see it to describe it. You have to run the dialogue and see where the characters lead you. So you have a very clear-cut image of what you want. But that can be a negative unless you take the time to listen to actors suggestions and other people on the movie it's always like the editor is probably the most important other person that you work with as a director on a piece because he's involved with the pace he selects every cut after you've shot it he still goes through and just cherry picks every piece you've had made and puts it together into his version of the film i never get involved with the editor when he's doing that because I want to see what his version will be. But sometimes you sit down and you look at it and you just go, you know, I was describing that little thing on the ice war virus where they recut the ending. That's just the, the ending of the movie. Imagine every cut's not the way you saw it and everything. You feel like you're going to have a heart attack, you know, and so I've learned not to have a comment. And then I go, oh, well, watch the movie. Promise myself I'll watch the movie three times before I make a comment to see what the editor's really done. And you have the same thing when you're working with an actor. You've written it and you know it so intimately and you have a strong opinion. And then the actor comes in, particularly a star, and has a new take on it. And you're sitting there and he's doing the first scene and 
my God, he's doing it like a gay character or he's doing it like this or like that, you know what I mean? And I didn't write it that way. Then you have the decision to make because you have to say, I'm not going to take on a low budget movie anyway, the time to try and work him into the character. I don't have time. So I have to adjust the script to who he's presenting to you as long as it's within a sensible range of the story plot still unfolds. That's the good thing about being a writer, but it's the bad thing because it's never pure in that respect. But, you know, it's a, commun- it's a communal effort making a film, 60 or 70 people. And on movies today, there's, that's usually 120 to 160, 15 drivers, and there's this, and the other and you go, you get to the set, and you, it looks like we're going to war. You know, we have so much equipment, I go, holy shit, when are we going to be at, how, how are we going to make this movie with this huge amount of people following me around in trucks and buses and all this stuff? But it's still a wonderful thing to do. What was the story of Passenger 57? Because I know you have writing credit on that, but not directing. It's called Passenger 57 because I was in my local, the Agora Deli down the road here, and I was thinking, what can I call this thing? And there was that bottle of Heinz ketchup there, and I was like, oh, that's it, Passenger 57. <laughs> then I wrote the original screenplay, and everybody loved it. Other people wanted to get it, but it was a fervidly anti-Arab piece didn't say one nice thing about the religion of Mohammedanism. It was just in your face, another view. And the head of Columbia said, she said, I love that scripture. He said, I can't make it because they'll put a bomb in the theater and blow the fucking theater up. And he says, I, I have to pass. But in the end, Warner's brothers said they'd do it. And I'd written it originally with Clint Eastwood playing the part. And he was burying his son in Europe and the plane got hijacked and the hijacker was this Arab fanatic, ISIS sort of character. And then they took them into Tehran, separated them into groups, pods, and then held them there. And he actually broke out and went and collected all the passengers together by taking the mullahs that were in the picture. Um, and they with all their gowns because they were running the country then. It was very much that way. And so we started doing rewrites. When you do a rewrite for the studios, you get a lot of money. So a lot of people say, oh, this is great. I'll do this forever. <laughs> you know what I mean? But it depletes the story. Then by the time we, we became a black actor, it didn't really make that much difference. But then the sort of silly thing, there was a producer on that film well, one of the executives of one of those, I even forget his name, I dismissed him from my brain that he was, he was kind of a weird young, youngster, but he, because um, I was a youngster, wasn't he? <laughs> Inspired, he said, oh, it's a cowboy. It's a cowboy you wrote about. Yeah, it's a cowboy. He said, he's kind of his horse with him. And I'm thinking, I said, but he's on a plane. He said, I they have the horses on planes. They're in the back end of the plane. And I said, and I said, no, no, no. I said, that's a different plane. You have to. I've shipped rhinoceroses to Africa and filmed them there and everything, and it's a separate plane. You can't have, you know, smelly animals in first class sort of thing, you know. And they said, no, no. This is what I want. Write his horse in with him. Then we'll expand the film 
with the horse and him and doing scenes with the horse. And so I came back home and I thought, well, I'll just do what they want, you know, 100 grand a pop, you know, so it's, it's a good deal. A week later, the head of the studio, he calls me up and he says, I understand you're running a horse into this, into this, the passenger fridge. And I said, at the moment, yes. And he says, forget it. He says, they don't have horses on the plane. I've taken care of it and go back to the what you had before. This is the, the, the craziness you sometimes face making a movie. You can't go into it with too much ego or too much set ideas in your mind because you've got to be flexible or save yourself to you're in charge on the set. They could they could fire you, but after three weeks, if you start watching the characters, it's not going to be too easy for them either, you know what I mean? You've also written books as well. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Well, I wrote one called Rage, which was right after the the one that we, we were just, the one we were just discussing, which was anti-Arab. Hate to say anti-Arab because they're just normal people, but they're all with fanatical reasons. You know, leaders. I mean, look at what the women have to do. They have to have a, a national war to just be able to uncover their faces. I mean, these these are the people that I was aiming my books and things against. And I wrote this book called Rage, and, and I got it right here. It's a really good book. The best thing I ever wrote as far as political thriller, and it's about 15 officers who take over a nuclear submarine with 176 nuclear weapons on it, which all of the, we have 14 of these big nuclear weapon, armed nuclear submarines. I researched it and all the nomenclature and how they work and where the engine is and what how they keep the secrets and who gives them permission to fire the things and all this stuff. I went in all through all that, but it's 15 officers take over a submarine and take off for the Middle East, and they don't know what they're going to do. It becomes apparent that they're going to use one of the nuclear weapons to revenge one of these guys on what these people are doing to his family and to America in general. Then I just finished another one, Empress Jade, and that's one I wrote for my wife. Said, "Give me, write me something that's for the female audience, you know." So it's a it's an action packed thriller with sort of, uh, of it's about a studio head, head of production of a studio who's famous, beautiful, dislike because she's tough and kind of carried away with herself, and she. Is from her, from her mother in a letter after she's died, that her father, who she had told her or him, I mean her all of her life, that her father had molested when he was young, and it was all a lie. And then she said, "I just have to tell you that your father did none of those things, and I just made it up to have a daughter would live with me." So she goes to Hawaii because he's heard now that he's living there, and he used to be in the Navy. And uh, she meets him, and then he's has his own, his own war in the ocean there, and he gets in, she gets involved with it, but she ends up 
killing a guy at the very beginning of it who's spaced out on like fentanyl today. And um, so she, you know, she's now committed a murder and then her father's trying to help her and she can't leave the island because the chief of police is going to get her. That was his brother that they murdered, she murdered. It's a real strong two women. It was originally called Isabella Flo, but nobody liked that. And so then they, my wife decided the Empress Jade is a good title. And the if Empress Jade is actually a ship in the movie that is doing something nefarious. And um, so it's an, it's, it all comes back to the Empress Jade in the end. Do you think you'll adapt that for the movies? I've written the novel, and I wrote the episodes into six a six-part miniseries. And each one is approximately 60 pages, which is 60 minutes long. They're probably a little longer, but I don't really care that much about going over because they're, they're just streaming it anyway. It's a, a good streaming film, and it's written for that. Because it's a big story, you couldn't tell that story in a feature because it's just it just has too much happening in it and it's about two women it has this woman who is the head of the studio with all the airs and power and respect of that and then suddenly goes the other and now she's you know in it with the police and everything where she has no power and there's a girl there Flo who's the woman that ran away there about relationship years and years before when she has her own dress shop and her father taught her how to shoot a gun and how to kick ass before she was 12 years old and she's from texas and that's who she is so it's this very prim smart urbane head of a studio with this flow girl who is from texas and earthy so they're good characters and it has really very interesting plot in it. I won't go into the plot or what I'm saying. Looks <laughs> so I'm, I'm just going to try and get that out to a studio to see be a perfect part for them. Well, thank you so much for your time. It is so nice speaking with you. Lovely seeing you too. You have a lovely day. I'm sorry I had to keep putting you up, but I was on the road with this musical that I wrote and uh, getting it underway, and it just was, it was crazy. And so now I'm back. But here we are. Where are you, by the way? I'm uh, just outside of Detroit. Oh, I spent the summer writing for the Free Press. 100 summers ago, I'm afraid, but. Now, you also worked for a newspaper in Chicago, is that right? I worked for the Chicago Tribune. Uh, and a paper called Chicago Today, which the Trib owned and then folded into the Tribune. It, it had been Chicago's American, if you're a, a, geek, a newspaper geek, as I am. I interned at the Free Press, and, uh, well, we lived, We wound up living. First, I was at Nine Mile in Coolidge, and then um, a bunch of us who were like interns rented a huge abandoned mansion in Indian Village. Oh, wow. 
the neighborhood was these huge houses, and they were um, the motor company executives had left. And so the neighborhood was kind of like DMZ. If you walked the block in the wrong direction, you were dead. But now, of course, everything is different. I'm sure it's, I'm sure it's probably a neighborhood by now. Or that's actually Ferndale. All my people in Detroit are now in Ferndale. Or they're, they're artists who've reclaimed mansions. But I don't think Indian Village. I think on the other side of town, on, you know, the, towards Dearborn side of town. So what are we talking about? Well, I want to ask you about Ice Pirates, if that's all right. I'm so glad you are, because I'm writing a book now about how I wrote the worst television shows in history and lived, and I'm including various other disasters and near disasters. And Ice Pirates was actually not a, it was actually a half-ass hit, uh, but the making of it was kind of disastrous, and that, it makes for, it's a funny tale. So I'm, I'm putting it, but, but tell me what you know. Well, I had read that was much more of a serious film to begin with before they turn it into a comedy. Is that true? Well, kind of. It was an adventure picture. Uh, Stuart Raffle, the director, wrote it. He may have written it himself or he may have had a collaborator. I don't recall. It's only 40 years ago. And some of the details are easy. But I suppose I could check the credits and that might reveal something. But I think he wrote it more as a straight action adventure in the, the style of Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know, that kind of thing, and um, with, with a science fiction twist. And it got, in the rewrites, it got spoofier and spoofier because it seemed like, well, with, with the, uh, the advent of Star Wars and, and those movies, uh, it seemed like ripe to make fun of. And in fact, Spaceballs followed us literally onto, our, onto the, the same stage using some of the same sets. MGM was in turmoil, and the head of production uh, was fired, uh, and new head of production was installed. Now, that John Foreman, who was our producer, who had been Paul Newman's producing partner for many years, Newman Foreman was their company, and it, you, you'll see the credit on a lot of Paul's pictures. He had developed this script because he, he kind of liked the idea. And when the, the head of production was fired abruptly by Kirk McCorian, the man who had bought MGM, John Foreman, as like the senior producer on the lot, was suddenly installed as head of production. So he moved his office from his little bungalow to, you know, Louis Mayer's office in, in the, uh, the Athalberg building. And he immediately greenlit Ice Pirates, which because it was like a pet project of his. And the reason he could greenlight it was because he took that, that property with, I want to say a contract player, but it was Robert Urich. Bob Urick was after I knew in Chicago when I had been there on the on newspaper, so we were friendly. And he became a television star when he moved out here. And he made a deal with MGM because he did his first year. I think Vegas may have been an MGM production. And then they wanted him for more productions after Vegas. So in order to get him, they had to guarantee him several movies. So they had Bob on a pay or play looking for material. And this was like, a part that, you know, if Harrison Ford couldn't do it, why not make Bob Urich Harrison Ford? So John greenlit it immediately, and it went into production. And nobody expected that to happen. So there were like lots of rewrites and stuff going on. And uh, I was brought in to make it funnier, to add more jokes to it. And around that time, Paul Williams, the tiny little Oscar-winning songwriter, actor, was uh, also a friend, was playing Weird Wendy, the, the evil emperor. And uh, he quit. I, I don't know why he got some, I don't know if he, he may have gotten something else. I mean, it was bigger. I don't remember. But they said, okay, you're playing Weird Wendy. 
Yeah, because I mean, and it, he gambles his head away. So it, I don't have, I didn't have to do any kind of walking or you know, had one scene where I was full body and everything else was my head, you know, just on the throne, on the thing or whatever. So I said, sure. And I did a rewrite, you know, and uh, they said, well, we didn't expect you to rewrite him and put him entering on page three. He's a supporting character. So I back to it and then, okay, I'll cut this, I'll cut that. And uh, we started shooting and Stewart directed it. And we were on the gigantic stage 30 at Metro, which was Munchkin land. It was the Emerald city of Oz. It was also had uh, underneath all that, a swimming pool, an indoor pool that was Esther Williams that was dug into the ground because they would put cameras under water uh, through portholes and they would shoot underwater swimming. So it's a city in itself, this stage. It's absolutely gigantic. And we had these sets, which look, they, they dressed them up so they looked okay. And we started shooting the thing. And it was a, an amazing collection of people. We had, Bob, of course, was the star. And the leading lady was Mary Crosby, who was Bing Crosby's daughter, uh, who older folks will remember is Mary Frances Crosby, which when she was a kid, she would you know hang out with him. And her mother was Catherine Grant, who became Catherine Crosby. And her mother was a, a movie star in The Big Circus is the picture I love of hers. So she was, and she later became famous, Mary, for shooting J.R. on Dallas, which was a national obsession. J.R., Larry had me get shot, and we don't know who did it. And of course, it's revealed that the secretary he was planking shot him, and that was Mary. And so that was probably Mary's biggest thing ever, was that uh, she got, she, she shot J.R. So, but this was ball before, I think it was before, it may have been right around the same time. So she was there, and then we had Angelica Houston. And Angelica, of course, her father was John Houston, the great director. And her grandfather was Walter Houston, the great actor. And her brother is Danny Houston. And Tony, there's that, the dynasty. She had made one picture. Uh, she had made a picture in Israel with Moshe Dayan's son, Asaf Dayan, who they were grooming to be an internet, to be like Antonio Banderas, who had not happened yet. But and the soft Dion, it didn't catch on. It was a medieval romance called The Walk with Love and Death, and it did not do very well. But John Foreman was very close to Angelica's father, and he put her in this movie where she played the Amazon, very strong. And John's next picture, uh, John Houston's next picture he was developing also with John Foreman, was Preetzi's Honor. And there was this fabulous part, and John Foreman thought Angelica should do it, and so... And he said, oh, I don't think she's strong enough. I don't think she's strong enough. And so he showed him the dailies from Ice Pirates, and he said, oh, I think she could do this. And, of course, she wound up winning the Oscar for it and becoming Angelica Houston. And as a result, she won the Oscar, and she had three pictures. She had A Walk with Love and Death, Ice Pirates, and Breach's Honor. They would show Ice Pirates over and over again, and Ted Turner loved it. And he would show it on all the TBS, TNT, anything with a T in it, he would show it on. To this day, she says to me, whenever I see her, she says, I can't escape that goddamn picture. She said, there's now a whole generation of people who were kids, and they grew up watching it on TV. And the first thing they say is, tell us about the Ice Pirates. Academy Award-winning actress. She has this brilliant career. I mean, it's something more Tisha Adams they're asking about. They're asking about Ice Pirates. Makes her crazy. So she was in it, and uh, Ron Perlman, who later became the Beast on Beauty and the Beast, and John Matuzak, who was a football player, who one day drove off the lot and smashed into a telephone pole, and we thought he was a goner, but uh, he survived and then OD'd, I, I believe. 
or he had a serious drug problem. But he was such fun to do the movie with. He was great. And we had a couple of days of John Carradine. John Carradine, who was like the Eminence Grieve. I mean, he's one of those iconic movie actors. And part of the reason why he was a great, he was from like, you know, the, the second wave of movie stars was because he just knew how to work the camera. He didn't have, you think he wasn't, you think he wasn't awake. And then you'd see the rushes and he was perfect. He was indicating exactly what he was supposed to be communicating to the audience. He was, he was tired, but he was, was a lot of fun like to talk to at lunch because he, of course, had all of these stories. And we were all entranced because people who make movies are all caught up with people who made movies. And I think that that still holds true, except that now you have a, they've used Spielberg and Lucas as, as the great granddaddies of movies. Times have changed. And then shooting the picture, and lo and behold, one day John Foreman got fired as head of production. And he moved from the Louis B. Mayor office back to his bungalow to continue this movie. And of course, as is typical, the new guy came in and said, well, we were too far into the picture for him to cancel it. So he said, okay, you have to wrap it in two weeks. And we had more to do. And so I had to go in and rewrite things. We added a time warp which is strictly to get us through all the material that we didn't have time to shoot. The whole thing was very seat of the pants. And on the last night of production, the Culver City blacked out. Somebody, not John Matuzak, somebody else ran into a transformer and the whole town blacked out. So we, could, we couldn't shoot the end of the picture. That was the last scene we were shooting. So John had to make a call to this guy and say, I'm calling you from the darkness of Culver City. Please let us come back tomorrow and finish this thing. So we came back tomorrow and finished it. And then it was, you know, everything was, you know, raised to the editing. And then Mel Brooks was preparing Spaceballs, and he came over one day and looked at the set, and he said, I, I'll use this set. And, of course, he had a lot more money. I mean, he had a big-ass production. And so he had sets all over the, the lot, but he did use some of them. If you look closely, you'll see some of this, the things are virtually unchanged. They are the, the same kind of thing. But, and then, you know, we sat on, they didn't sit on it. They wanted to get, get a release so we get some of their money back. And uh, the first weekend, it did great. You know, it didn't go through the roof, but John Foreman said, it's a half-assed hit. We're actually, I mean, people, way more people showed up than they expected. It tracked very low. And three times the amount of people showed up. So, and then it continued to do business. And, you know, and then of course, the moment it was, it was available for television and for cable, it became a moneymaker for them. But we had no idea it would come in any way iconic. But, you know, we weren't gambling with uh, the internet, cable TV, made it, that, that has made movies like Hocus Pocus and, and Ice Pirates iconic because people can watch them a thousand times at home used to be on their uh, DVD player, and now it's on streamers. So uh, we find ourselves, you know, with, with, I find myself talking to, you know, Mike White 40 years later. <laughs> so, no, had I known, I said, I would have paid closer attention. You had done a lot of acting earlier in your life. Had you been that much in front of the cameras after that? No, I was a child actor, but never a child star, or we'd be having this conversation in rehab. I acted a lot on stage. I did little things in movies. I never, I mean, I was, I would do a scene in this one, a scene in that one, yeah, because I'm a type. And then I, Hollywood Squares, when I, once I was on Hollywood Squares, then uh, I was, I was iconic. I was a gay icon, but also 
I'd walk in the room and they would say, oh, well, you know, we have him. It'll take this, the whole picture will make a left because everybody go look at that. There's that guy. And I said, I'll do it. I'll shave. I'll, you know, I'll change. I'll take off the glasses. I mean, I'll act. Every now and again, somebody says, okay, give that a try. But, but I continued acting. I went to Broadway with Hairspray and toured. I didn't play the Fisher, but uh, toured around short for a year in it. So I've, I've never stopped the acting part, but it, it was never, it was never, by then I had a real a writing career. So I wasn't, it wasn't preeminent. Had you done much script rewriting at that point? Yeah, I was into it at that point. I had done a lot of television writing. I'd done a lot of variety show writing because I'd come out here to do the Manhattan Transfers television show and was writing for a lot of TV. So I was known for that. And when, when variety television disappeared because of cable, it was supplanted by award shows and specials and things. And I did a lot of those. So I did a lot of that kind of stuff. I wrote 15 screenplays that got picked up and sold and never got made for one reason or another. Stars died, studios collapsed. I mean, I have a whole litany of things. And I did a whole bunch of pilots and they didn't happen. You know, for It's, all, it's uh, the luck of the drum. Pauline Kale used to wrote once that Hollywood is where you can be encouraged to death. You know, that, you know, it doesn't matter. It doesn't, didn't work, but you know, oh, go ahead, do it. Try another one. We'll pay you to try something else. So I guess I've been a beneficiary of that. Were they all comedies or did you do dramas as well? Funnily enough, I'm called in to add comedy stuff to action movies, some like Die Hard or Die Hard movies, things like that. And, um, but mostly it's comedy. Yeah. Yeah. When you look like this, well, I mean, I could say, look, I've had a hard life. Look how I look. Now I'm going to write my version of Hatful of Ray. You wrote one of my favorite specials, which was the Paul Lind Halloween special. I know. It's, a, it's coming up. I'm plugging it now. Go to a YouTube near you. It will tickle and delight you. Never Again, it, again we, we never expected another one. If we'd known, we would have paid closer attention. But, you know, those, that was the day of those wacky 70s variety specials where you just collected a whole bunch of people and, and concocted a theme. And it was an excuse to get them on. See, part of the reason it died away is because you can, with the advent of cable, you could see them anywhere at any time. I mean, it, it was kind of amazing that the talk shows didn't die away, but that's because they are relatively cheap to produce. And they're, they're a viable avenue for plugging other projects. So that's why they live. But the variety TV is not that, and it's it's a job. I mean, when we did the Donnie and Marie show or... or SNL is the only one that's still on that's like that, where the guest stars show up on Monday and we shoot on Friday. And it's a week of work, learning routines, characters, writing, rewriting, and all that. And people aren't going to give you that anymore. They don't need to. To plug a movie, you know, The Rock will go on Kelly Clarkson and sing a song to plug Black Adam. But that takes that's an hour of his day. So people are not going to commit to that kind of schedule anymore. You know, I mean, it used to be a thing to be on Sunny and Cher. Oh, boy, you know, there was a whole bunch of people who did those shows, but not so much no more. Yeah, it's amazing to even just think of how many people had variety shows and just the, sorry for the use of the word, but the variety of variety shows like Shields and Yarnell or Carol Burnett or, you know, Pink Lady and well, Jeff. Silverman was responsible for a lot. Well, he was responsible for all those teens. He came up with Sonny and Cher and Tony Orlando and Dawn and Donnie and Marie and the Brady Bunch Variety Hour, which I wrote, and Pink Lady and Jeff, which I didn't write. 
I mean, he had, and every summer he would program Joey Heatherton and her father, Ray Heatherton and Ray Melman, Joey and dad. He, I mean, I, I could give you the whole list. There, I mean, it's amazing. He believed in teams. The last thing he did was Barbara Mandrell and the Mandrell sister. Boy, I forgot about that one. That was the last actual network variety show. I mean, that was for real. It lasted. There were a couple of false starts after that, but there was nothing actually lasted. But variety is still there. It's just all competition now. You watch, uh, so you think you can sing, so you think you can fart, the masked farter, American Idol, the voice. They're all, they're all variety shows. They're people getting out there and singing and dancing. As America's got talent, it's got people, you know, whistling out of their dog. I mean, it's on, but they're competitions and they're judges. And so it's, it's, it's kind of like the Olympics every night. The show business Olympics and people, America loves that. Although I have to say that a lot of those formats are originated elsewhere in, in Japan and Holland and uh, Britain. They're not original American formats, but we seem to really take them like crazy because we like winners now and we, we like to support and all that. And incidentally, we watch a lot of people hit a lot of high notes. Do you mind if I ask you about the Star Wars holiday special? Oh, go right ahead. That's- I would love to know just even how you got involved in it, how that project came together. Well, George was about to start The Empire Strikes Back. He, Star Wars had been out for about a year and a half, and he wanted to stir the pot, and he had a whole bunch of stories lying around that were Star Wars universe. He was selling them off to various things, and he had one left, and he sold it to CBS as a, as a variety show. And I think had he known, I don't think George was too, co- too cognizant of variety shows. I don't think he was a watcher of variety shows, or he would have realized what he was getting into. And he also, if he were, if he thought they were going to do an original musical, which was why he, how he sold it, he probably would not have sold them the story that involved lead characters, the Wookiees, who could not sing or dance or speak any known, uh, human, known language. And in fact, as I always say, sound like fat people having orgasms. <laughs> Trust me, I know. It was weird to write for them, and it was uh, especially because uh, we, we couldn't use subtitles in those days because they said nobody will read them, which is ironic because now uh, Lupita Nyong'o has been in several of these Star Wars movies and doesn't speak a word of English in any of them. Everything she says is so bad. She's speaking in Klingon or whatever language, Kakaka, her home planet is. But we weren't allowed to, so we had to bring on guest stars who would translate for what the Wookiees were saying to move the plot along. So right away, I mean, you knew it was doomed. But it was the 70s. We were all chemically altered. You know, I say that, and then I get I see things on, on blogs saying, Valange, who admits to copious drug use. Not copious drug. I, I smoked the joint, you know? I mean, I joke that Carrie Fisher and I snorted the sweet and low. And maybe we did once, but it was not, you know, I was not, that's not my normal, my resting stone face is not that. But... It was the era of that kind of, you know, oh, let's try this. Oh, let's try this. You know, and, and everybody was a little altered. There were lots of crazy shows, crazy the way Newton at SeaWorld, you know, with whales dancing behind it. I mean, this just seemed like a crazy thing to do with this movie, which I have to tell you at the time, nobody was saying, oh, my God, this is, this is the new direction. This is the second coming. It was a, a fun summer movie that George based on a whole lot of Republic serials, which was Republic Studios and Saturday morning serials. I mean, George was a kid. 
he'd go to the movies and see those serials. And it was done in the style of that, it, with the wipes and all of that, which he still uses. So nobody took it terribly seriously. Star Wars has not yet become the Scientology of the nerds. You know, after the three movies came cable and home video, and, and that's where all that sprang from because they began seeing the show, the movies over and over, and creating this whole worship situation, this whole uh, neo-religion based around it. And so when the internet came in and the Star Wars holiday special popped up, they, people were going, what's this? George, how can you betray us like this? You know, with this, with this piece of slime. Uh, so it, it never went away. It became iconic because uh, it, every time he did a new star, he always said he was going to make six movies. And when he, when he did the second three, it came back every time. And now, of course, he's extended it. You know, there have been four more and, and two Star Wars universe, Rebel One and Solo and all that. So there's always a Star Wars movie in circulation. So there's always, you know, talk about the thing. It just, it just does not, does not go away. But it was, it was, that truly is, we would have paid closer attention. I mean, there was, yeah, we were locked into a certain thing. And at some point, George just walked away. And and, uh, when when they fired his handpicked director and the network came in and said, okay, we're bringing in, you know, people who know how to do this. And watched it the other day and I was thinking it, it looks so cheesy. I mean, at the time we thought, wow. It almost looks like the movie. It looks like paintings, renderings of things that might have been in the movie, but there's a rendering at the end as a set, which is nothing like it, and, and some very strategic lighting so you don't see how unlike it, it is. And, of course, there are the movies clomping and stomping and, and all the way through the thing. But it's, it's a trash classic. Who'd you work on that with? Was that Pat Proft? Pat Prop and Lenny Rift, who were a writing team at the time, a wonderful writer named, named Ron Perlman, who was known as Ronnie Perlman. Uh, there, was, there were three Ron Perlmans. One of them ran Revlon. <laughs> and the other two, Ronnie Perlman was a writer who at the time was going with Linda Ronstadt. And so she was around. And, uh, and then Ron Perlman, who was the actor in Ice Pirates later. Ronnie Perlman, who was my favorite, was a very, very funny writer. And he uh, had a bad back and used to lie on the floor during meetings and shout up his ideas. <laughs> it was that kind of a stab. And then Ken and Mitzi Welch, who were a husband and wife songwriting team and writing team who had written a lot for Carol Burnett. They had written all the musical material that was on the Burnett show, about those huge parodies and big production. They were on it. Well, Gary Smith came in. Steve Binder, who had produced... Uh, Elvis, the Elvis in Hawaii, which big, big concert that's now, you know, revered. I mean, he's really good. And, um, they, he, he came in and, and fixed it basically. And I'm sure there may have been, I think, trying to give, there were other writers who I'm forgetting, but I don't think so. I think it was, that was, uh, that was it. I think I don't look it up. I am writing about it. Tell me more about your book. I'm very curious and I can't wait to read it when it comes out. My book is about how I wrote the worst TV shows and lived, and I'm calling it, it seemed like a bad idea at the time, because they were all, you know, like, really? You want to do that? And I, they came to me. It was already sold. I said, fine. But I'm using it as a way in to talk about this this bizarre career that I've had. Well, I always love when you pop up on stuff, and I always love to see your name in the credits. It's on 25 Oscar shows, so, you know, that's 
And a lot of those worked. Some of them were disasters, but a lot of them worked. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, I was watching the documentary about you today and the, all of those great, the Whoopi Oscars, the Billy Crystal Oscars. I mean, those are classics. Those are absolute classics. And more so now because they have such trouble doing it now. I mean, last year was a mess before Will Smith. Are you still working on those shows? I unofficially, I, people call me in. I did some work for one of the sites on the last one and other people, they, they get the material and they say, I, oh, I don't like this, but you fix it. Cause they know I'm around. But a lot of times you know, the hosts come in and they bring their own writers and the Academy's budget is such that they it's eaten up uh, by all the host writers. And so they have to bring in a couple of people and at least one of them knows what he's up to. John Max, who has written on, on a lot of them. But they bring in a lot of people who don't know how to write that kind of stuff. And I mean, you, you are handed Keanu Reeves to write something for. And what are you going to write? Bill and Ted? I mean, you're going to write some sparkling dialogue like The Matrix? He's Keanu Reeves. You know, he doesn't have a Keanu Reeves stage persona. So you have to know how to give him something that's not going to make him sound like a pompous guy reading something from a teleprompter or, or some ridiculous banter that he has no reason. When does he ever banter? That's an interesting task. And a lot of writers don't know what to do with it. They're not up to it. Or there's no reason why they should be. They have careers writing other things. And they're brought to this show because they think, oh, I'll go to the Oscars. I get a gift basket. You know, I'll get to, I'll get to chase Timothy Chalamet around. How does it feel when something that you've written just really lands and it's somebody else saying those words? What does that feel like for you? You know, it's orgasmic. It's great because, uh, I mean, there's a great deal of pride. I mean, I suppose if I had a kid and a kid did something extraordinary and I was there to witness it, it would, it would be that kind of feeling like, wow, all of that work paid off or, you know, words to that effect. And when it, when it goes down in flames, it re you really feel like, as I said in the movie, it's like a plane load full of people who you love going down in flames. It's awful. It's a horrible feeling. And especially if you feel like, well, you can blame it on a lot of different things, but when, when there's nothing to blame it on, but it wasn't as good as you thought it was. You can't blame it on them. You can't blame it on a sound glitch. You can't blame it on they cut away or whatever. There are a million things you can blame it on, but ultimately you have to accept responsibility for it. But that doesn't come without a price. You don't get to be 237 pounds without, you know, without a lot of pizza. So you just were working on a musical. You've got the book that you're working on. How many projects do you work on at a time? There's no set limit. People are always saying, you, you, know, you wake up, you have an idea, you write it down, and then you see where it goes. There's no limit that you tend to have. Certain point, you have to just move all of them out of the way and, and concentrate on the one at hand, whatever that happens to be. So when I was on the road with this musical, Here You Come Again, that was what I was doing. I was... Being in Delaware, rehearsing all day and doing the show, watching the show at night. And there was no time for anything else. But, yeah, but I'm not one of those writers you know, who goes off in a cabin in the woods and gets hobbled by, by a demonic nurse. That's Stephen King. I, novelists tend to be like that. They tend to go away for three months and emerge with a novel. I'm, I'm much too social. And uh, a lot of the work I do is collaborative with other people. So and and performative you know we all get up and we carry on and shout lines at each other and so i'm that kind of a writer although i would uh i keep thinking it'd be fun to go off someplace and just say okay now i'm going to write this but 
with the internet now, it's, everything is just too uh, is is too interesting, and I'm also too used to coming up with stuff things as they are happening to be that that kind of guy. So there you go. I know that you're a newspaper junkie, but how are you even getting your fix these days? Like everybody else online, I mean, uh, there are certain sites I go to every day and read. And I am on Facebook. I mean, so I keep up. There's, you know, stuff comes into the inbox. And the nice part of it is I don't, I keep saying I don't have the clutter I used to have, but I'm looking around in my office and it's full of clutter. Somehow I've managed to, you know, I'm this far from being a hoarder. I'll read that magazine for June of 2017. I will, I will. So at events, certain point, I you know, say, okay, let, let's get rid of this. And then the room looks so empty. So what's next for you? Waiting outside now is my what is next for me? Well, we're going to do seven more productions of, Do- of the Dolly thing. We start at Fort Worth. We open Fort Worth November 5th at Casa Manana. And then we will do Pittsburgh and Nashville, where Dolly will unveil it. And yim, 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 Goodspeed Opera House and, uh, next summer. And, and a few more after that. So that's in the immediate something. And then I have to actually, I've got to like, kick ass and finish this book. So that's, you know, that's what I have. That's what I'll be doing. Mr. Valanche, thank you so much for your time. This was so great. Terrific. Love meeting you. Now, how many people think you're, you're the other Mike White? Oh, a lot. The White Lotus guy wants me on his podcast? What? We are back and we are talking about Ice Pirates. And yeah, we've already mentioned a few of the other movies that, you know, like like we said, it's a very limited genre, a very a limited subgenre is what we should say. You've got your space balls, your Galaxina, the creature was a nice. I'm trying to think of other like space type parody movies, but I mean, a lot of them just kind of recycle those same jokes. You talked about Alien. I think every single one of these has an alien joke in it. There's a lot of cantina type stuff. I mean, it's it's wild, but yeah, I mean, Spaceballs, like I said, is the it's it's the big one. It's the monster in the room, the gorilla in the room, because it just so many people just love that movie. But I have to say, Ice Pirates really does give it a run for its money. I think the only other movie that really I could think of that's like a funny sci-fi movie, oft maligned, though I don't think it's nearly as bad as everybody says. But that's also because I'm willing to give Martin Freeman a pass almost all the time. I am a huge fan of that Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy oh, movie. Oh, yeah. And that's funny. It's a funny space movie that is weird, and it has Sam Rockwell in it, too. But it's, I mean, it's not like this, but... I mean, you know, it's based on the Douglas Adams book, which is its own ball of wax to get into. But I, it's kind of a funny space movie. It's not a parody, but it's kind of it. It's kind of a send up of sci-fi in a way. Well, in the original, I don't know if it was BBC, but like the British miniseries of it, that is right in this same time period. That was 1981. I mean, I know you're talking about the, what was it, 2017 one? Mm, 2007. 2007, holy 2007 shit. 2007 yeah, or 2008, right. yeah. It so... is older than I thought, but 
Martin Freeman's been around since the... It blows my mind to think that Martin Freeman has been acting since at least the British version of The Office that he was in as one of the main characters. I wonder when that video for I Started a Joke by uh, Faith No More came out, because he's in that. Oh my god. Also in, in Love Actually, 2003, he plays the porn stand-in. Oh, I in, loved uh, him Love in that. Actually, right? I know a lot of people hate that movie, but I really like it. I, I love what, it. What, Love yeah. Actually? What do they yeah. hate it for? Because they hate love? I have love? no idea. Yeah, Just cynical I, bastards? They're I mean, probably look, like, oh, Alan Rickman's so bad. These like, movies are so manipulative. It's like, that is the point of these films, is to make you cry. Exactly. Like, to, exactly. And it's rather, I, well, I mean, Love Actually is great because of the cast. I mean, that's that's the... That's the selling point. That whole, that guy who goes to America and is just like, oh, the British girl, the American girls are going to love my accent and ends up having a threesome with them. I'm like, yeah, yeah, this is hilarious yeah, stuff. Right. Pretty right. Bottle of beer. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, wonderful movie. Well, that's a sidetrack. But yeah, <laughs> it's funny. I mean, the other movie, you mentioned, um, you know, A Hitchhiker's Guide. I think the fifth element owes some, some things to this movie. I, I really think it's like just the, the weirdness that, that that world that Lupasan you know set up it's it's really goofy in a lot of ways it's a serious movie and there's you know global sorry, sorry, galactic consequences but I don't know there's a lot of funny weird odd odd moments in that movie that remind me of this same lived in thing Fifth Element has that old lived in universe I kind of juxtaposed against the parts that are I mean that's the thing in this movie that we do see in a lot of these kind of sci-fi comedies is juxtaposing the nice kind of technologically superior against the not like in Spaceballs and in this movie. Even the, the ancient order of like who's, you know, who guards these mystic stones to like stop the great, the grand evil. It's like, okay, it's drawn on the same kind of you know, weird human mythology, which is interesting to me. Uh, I was surprised how much I thought of Fifth Element when this was Ice Pirates. That was a big shock to me. Well, and I have to also assume that all of this kind of this high high fashion you know wearing like like in this or you know with the templars i what it's got to also come from star trek right with uh but they like land on the planet and he's like fucking with kirk and he had he's got like a sword do, I, I, does anyone know what i'm you guys have to know what i'm talking no, I about do, right? i do i do I watched this as a kid, so I, I, I don't remember the exact story, but I watched this all the time as a kid. The guy looks like Dick Van Dyke. I forget the actor's name. But, like, there's that. There is so much of that in Star Trek when they go to those, like, weird, like, when they go to the past or when they go to the Old West. Like, that, that I feel like that's where everybody got that idea from, at least, to do something similar in these movies. Because Star Wars doesn't really do it, at least not the original Star Wars. You know, there's a lot of similarities between Star Wars and other stuff. I mean, the very first film book I ever had in college was like, here's Star Wars and here's Wizard of Oz and look at how these things compare. And I'm like, okay, that's kind of cool. But yeah, as far as like really playing up like cowboys or knights in space, I mean, they do it. I mean, Jedi Knights, all those kind of things, but it's not as blatant as this. And I kind of like the way that this is just out there you know you mentioned firefly apparently roscoe says shiny at one point kind of like how they always say shiny and firefly so maybe you know and i kept saying whedon when i met wendon um maybe oh of course yeah so maybe maybe this was his character yeah huge, a, huge fan i don't know <laughs> i'm not the josh whedon yeah <laughs> right this is still superior to both that entire show and the subsequent film that came after 
I liked the movie, but I don't know. I think its fan base got way... Oh, Whoa. I don't like the fans. I do not like the fans. <laughs> like, let me back this up for you. Yeah. If you oh. thought what I said was I like the fans. No, <laughs> no. I would probably say that I'm not a fan just to avoid being associated with them. Likewise. Yeah. I would, You know what, though? Like, I would like to see more of these kinds of things tackled. Like, less, less like Cowboys versus Aliens, more like Ice Pirates. Boy, Cowboys versus Aliens, man. <laughs> Lest we not forget. Oh, God. It's like everybody we've talked about mixed into a giant bag. You've got people from every walk of genre in that movie. Kind of doing a sci-fi, you know, weird thing. I mean, it's the failure, though, is when you take it too seriously, or you're just want to sound self-serious, it fails. With the ice pirates, they're having fun. They're just there to entertain the shit out of you. And that's, that, that, that's a noble goal. I'm all, I'm, I'm all aboard that. I don't care. If you're being so, I don't know, just we're self-important, I'm turned off. It's like, okay. You're just a goofy movie. <laughs> well, and that for me is like the I- issue anymore with like making something like this. No, it, nobody would make a movie like this anymore, knowing that you're making it solely to just be entertaining. And you can't make a movie like this anymore because it's just a big dumb movie. Nobody. I mean, again, like you've already mentioned, Dwayne. Like, who? What amount of? Oh, how many eight balls were they on for this? Even though you could do a sequel to this, it's not set up for a sequel. This was not set up to be a franchise type of thing in the final product. Which I which I appreciate even more. Like, where do they go from here? Nowhere. It's a, it's a completely different thing. It's like Earth Girls are easy now. Ice Pirates 2, Spring Break. They're on Miami Beach. Come on. There you yeah. go. I mean, it's a completely different movie. It's just a bunch of fish out of water, which would be awesome, frankly. Dwayne, you nailed it when you compared it to Dark Star because this does have that same just goofy energy. And again, a bunch of people having a, a great time making a film or potentially a great time. I know that there was a lot of behind the scenes conflict on that one, but 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 the same kind of z- zany humor that they had. It's funny. You mentioned, you know, they would make this today. I was just, I want to name names. But I was watching this recent-ish science fiction streaming show. So I was really looking forward to but it's so like deadly serious. It's like whatever happened to like sci-fi, the sense of wonder and like fun and like, you know, the sort of, I don't know. I was just so turned off by like, Oh no, we'd be really gritty and real world problems. And it's like, Oh, come the fuck on. Man. <laughs> well, that's what I'm saying. Like you can't make, cool shit. <laughs> you can't make fun things anymore. Nothing can be fun. Like it, you know, it's I it, I feel kind of like those comedians screaming about comedy. You can't be funny anymore. But this is different. Like I don't feel like you can make fun movies anymore. Everything Not has zany. to be like yeah. super serious. Like even even the Ghostbusters sequel was like so serious, and we got to talk about a dead Egon. And it's like oh, it's like why fucking god? Like do you remember the original Ghostbusters? It was a fun movie. It wasn't like, here's the the pack and here's the car. It's like, Jesus Christ, guy. Just make a movie that's fun. Like, fun. Family, legacy, you know, all this heavy. It's like, no, it's it's a bunch of fuck-ups who like, you know, fight ghosts. I mean, you're right. Make an entertaining movie first. I mean, if you want to tackle a serious topic, I get it. If that's what you're setting out to do. But not everything has to be that all the time. Like, you're allowed to have fun making movies and watching them and create. And like, every aspect of it can be fun you don't have to be so chris nolan all the time look i'm convinced you guys I, i'm now team ice pirates i was lukewarm going into this i thought what the hell is this thing but man i'm, I'm talking to it I'm, I'm all the way 
you know, having seen it now five times this year, <laughs> you would hope I would be able to find some enjoyment in it. All right, guys, let's go ahead and take another break and play a preview for next week's show. For every band, there is a moment when they know they have made it. For one band, this is not that moment. Thank you. Thank you, guys. You're a great crowd. Okay, girls, we need the lane now. And your shoes. They were three small-town girls with big-time dreams. Who's a rock star? I am. Who wanted to share their music with the world. We can't sit around here waiting for it to happen. We are musicians. We should be out there playing music. We do play. Nobody believed in them. You know, you suck. (laughs) But they believed in themselves. We're special. Yeah, special Ed. (laughs) Now... In a world of tough competition. And that is so sad. Fate is giving the Pussycats the chance of a lifetime. We'd love for you to sign with Mega Records. How am I going to pull this off? I'm a girl from Riverdale. I'm not a rock star. you got to believe in yourself. Things are finally going their way. But between the mania... Is that Joseph? They're going to be huge. The managers. We decide everything. What's hot and what's not. Welcome to your party. Who else thinks that Fiona's a freak? And the media. We're going to be on TRL. Mm-hmm. This may be the toughest gig they've ever played. Have you noticed that everything has sort of become all about Josie? Josie. 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 Josie! Spin around. I made you a rock star. Tell me you don't love that. Forget it. You know, I never liked you. No matter what happens, we will always be friends first. Are you going to kill me with the guitar? You messed with the wrong pussycat. My bad. Josie and the Pussycats. And so we'll be back next week with another fun movie. Imagine that. Josie and the Pussycats. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-host, Dwayne and Chris. So, Dwayne, what is keeping you busy these days? Oh, uh, God, so many things. I just finished a new novel, which I can't discuss yet because they'll kill me if I do. But I'm actually excited. I have, a, I have a, a column I've started, a magazine called Bare Bones Magazine. It's kind of a pop culture thing. And my column is called The Field Guide to L.A. Pulp, which I indulge my weird hobby of finding where writers lived in L.A., where they worked, where they partied, they died. <laughs> and, and so I wrote this for my first column was out a few weeks ago um, about Armitage Trail, who wrote the novel Scarface, uh, who's forgotten. He died young, died weirdly, and his corpse is missing, as I discovered. So that was a fun column, right? So that's been, been a lot of fun. And it's you know, all the other craziness out here in LA. And Chris, what's happening in your world, sir? Oh, you know, over in my world, just a whole lot of weirdingwaymedia.com, which is the place uh, that you can listen to my show, The Culture Cast, that I did a an episode on this, but you've listened to this episode, so you don't need to hear mine, uh, period. Some <laughs> people want to be I... completists. You <laughs> yeah. know, some people are like, oh, there's there's another episode out there about Ice Pirates? I've got to listen to it. I'm going to it, you kidding me? I'm all, I'm all about it. Yeah, yeah. Or, yeah. Uh, but uh, weirdingwaymedia is... a super fan now. <laughs> yeah. Great. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad. Ice Pirates 2 coming soon, maybe. 
who needs it? The world. Uh, now, weirdingwaymedia.com is where you can find my show, your show that we're listening, you're listening to right now, and a whole host of other shows, uh, including uh, the one of the ones that we just added, Twisted and Uncorked. It's a true crime, paranormal, supernatural podcast, not hosted by me. It's hosted by two lovely ladies. One's Canadian and one lives in the South. So let your imagination go wild with the kinds of conversations that they have. Uh, and you can find all of that and more over at weirdingwaymedia.com. Well, thank you so much, guys, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. Thanks especially to our Patreon community. If you want to join the community, visit patreon.com slash projection booth. Every donation we get helps the projection booth take over the seventh world. Mm-hmm.